That's why you have a producer. Jamie's on the ball. Yeah, you want to talk a little closer to in the mic? Yeah. yeah, get that sucker right up to you. Just pull it. You Me can too. Move it around. Yeah. Bring it to you. You don't want to feel uncomfortable. These chairs are shit, huh? They're very nice. Cool. Ooh, yeah. We're live? Oh, we're live, 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 live. Oh. Uh, I'm here with my good pal, Ryan Callahan. How are you, buddy? I'm doing swell. How are you doing? And uh, his good pal, Kenton Kruth. I uh, met you before at the First Light booth at the SHOT Show. That was the first time I met you, right? I think so. I think that's it. Yeah. And we, I wanted to have you guys on, first of all, because I, I, like, I love your company. You guys got a great company. Uh, First Light makes really cool uh, hunting clothes, outdoor clothes made out of, you started out with merino wool, which I think, uh, before I went with uh, Ryan and Steve Ranella, I really had no idea about the properties of merino wool. I didn't know that it keeps you from stinking, that it, you know, like it, that it really keep, retains heat while you're wet. So it's got so many awesome properties to it. Like if you go out, for people that don't know, that don't go in the outdoors, but if you go out and you walk and it's cold out and you hike like a long distance and you get sweaty, if you're wearing cotton, you're kind of fucked. If it's really cold out, once you start getting sweaty, your body starts shivering and you get in a real bad place. Wool has this really weird quality, and maybe you can help me explain that, where when it gets wet, it somehow or another still retains heat. So if you sweat in it, you still feel okay. Like, how? what's going on there? Well, you know, it just it naturally moves the sweat off of your skin and kind of tries to get it to the outermost layer, and at which point then it can evaporate fast. But, um, you know, sheep have to live in crazy environments. You know, it'll be hotter than shit in the summertime and then, um, you know, super cold in the winter. So, you know, over the course of evolution, they've got, you know, a coat that will deal with a massive amount of, of variance, you know. And wool is pretty much the same. It's like you can wear it when it's when you're sweating bolts, it pulls the sweat off and then um, dries pretty quickly. But even when it's wet, it retains 80 percent of its heat. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing stuff. And is there a synthetic uh, material that does the same thing? Well, every synthetic is trying to A, mimic down, or B, mimic merino wool, because those are the two most efficient, um, you know, temperature-regulating fabrics or materials out there. Um, and that's that's how you got into your pre-malofts and your, all your military testing, and that's where you saw synthetics really take off. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, so like a Primalof, for example, or um, some of your fleeces, they basically um, combine something that loves water and something that hates water. So the thing that love, loves water is going to pull moisture off, and the thing that hates it is going to repel it and try to push it to the outside. That's interesting. So it's like sort of a two-layer process where something's trying to keep you dry and something's trying to like literally suck up the wet like a sponge. Yes. And then somehow or another your body heat then can regulate it because your body heat, you're, you're staying warm because the dry is close to your skin and then the heat comes off your skin and can, it can dry out that stuff better. Yeah, exactly. And your body heat, you're like your natural, um, you know, your natural zone, how much heat and how much moisture you push out is a major factor. Um, and especially when you get into like some of your waterproof breathable um, membranes and things like that. Uh, That's but, something that I think really would surprise a lot of people when it comes to uh, hunting clothing. They really would have no idea like how much, how much, how technical the stuff is and how much thought is put into it and how, how like involved the process is of creating this stuff. 
You know, it's funny because we all kind of came from the traditional like ski, snowboard, snowmobile world, you know, grew up whatever skiing. And so we've been, you know, involved in having super, you know, technical clothes since I was, I don't know, eight years old, right? Right. All the underwear stuff for sure. skiing is yeah. all merino wool. All the different polys when that kind of came out and replaced cotton when I was a kid. And, you know, um, they were great, but it wasn't until we kind of started using merino that we found something that i mean you know if you go skiing or snowboarding or sledding snowmobiling right you're sweating bullets and if you get stinky whatever it's just how it always was you know but for hunting it's a really a big deal you know if you can possibly kind of you know shrink your stink footprint just by a little bit it can be the difference between succeeding that season or not you know and so we all start wearing Merino for whatever, you know, all of the other sports, you know, like skiing and snowboarding and, you know, pedal biking and whatever. Um, and once we found out that it didn't stink, that was like, whoa, that was a big deal, you know, because you could wear it for days and days. And so that was kind of the impetus. And at the same time, it started taking over. I would say, the traditional outdoor space, you know? Yeah, and your company is really popular with public land, do-it-yourself hunters, uh, guys who go out backpacking for long periods of time, and that's one of the reasons why they like that merino wool. And one of the reasons why I wanted to have you guys on is to talk about what's been going on lately with uh, H.R. 621 and now H.R. 622, these two recent bills, they pulled H.R. 621. Steve Rinello wrote a big article about it, but for the uninitiated, what these bills are about is they're about selling off our public land, uh, giving the states the ability to do whatever they want with it. Right now, these lands are federal. They're owned by the people of the United States. It's a very unusual situation that we have here. It's, it's an amazing situation. And there's very few countries in the world that have anything even remotely close to it, where there's millions and millions and millions of acres that are available for anybody listening to this to go on. It's, it's, you, it's literally your land. Like backcountry hunters and anglers have that great shirt that I wear all the time. It says public landowner, and I've seen you on it. And I'll, I'm going to tweet the picture of you and I um, from SHOT Show um, where I was, I was with you and you were wearing that shirt. That, yeah, that's that's a such an important point for people because they I didn't know it at all until I went with you guys until I went with uh, Renella and the crew uh, we went to Montana that first trip with Brian Callen who's hopefully coming that's why that door's open folks if you're watching this we're leaving that door open because uh, Callen is trying to make his way over here right now um, but I didn't know that this public land system even existed and I think most people are unaware they just don't they don't understand how unique this is and how uh, incredible like the the our forefathers like their 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 vision to make something so incredible that no one can go in and just fucking put malls up in it is an amazing thing and i think this is like the easiest battle in the world if we can somehow tell people or you know communicate even a fraction of our appreciation for it yeah like, it's just it is the reason i get up in the morning well, especially where you guys are, because you guys are like, you're in the boondocks, man. <laughs> I mean, you guys are in Idaho and you're in a, a beautiful area, but you could literally like go out your back door and make a straight line through public land for forever. Like you could just go walk and disappear. Oh, I mean, I'm, we can yeah. walk straight north and cross uh, uh, two highways and one interstate and keep going across the Canadian border, um, cross two more highways and be in the Yukon basically. So 
it's a wild chunk of ground. It's amazing. It and, is. And it's open to everybody. Everybody. And, you know, it's, it's an interesting issue because sometimes, you know, you'll get mountain bikers, you get after the equestrian people or the, you know, the, the, the hikers get after the motorbikers. But it's an issue for every single person because no matter what sport you do or how you choose to enjoy the outdoors, that's your land. Once that's gone, it's gone. Yeah, I mean, and there are regulations, like, as far as where you can take motorbikes or where you can ride even bikes, right? Even trail right. bikes. But th that set aside, man, there's there's some amazing country that you could just go get lost in, just go wander, pitch a tent, drink out of a stream, and you could stay there for long periods of time, and it's totally legal, it's totally yours, your yes. tax dollars literally fund and support it, and all the money that comes from buying hunting equipment from buying tags from all that stuff is what pays to keep fish and game uh employed make sure that people are monitoring the health and the populations of the animals that live there making sure that no one is breaking any of the laws i mean it's really an amazing amazing system it is it's unreal and you know i, I want to clarify a couple of things like all these national forests um at any BLM grounds, they all have their own regulations. So, yeah, you can pull Bureau up. of Land Management for folks that Bureau don't know what you're saying. Bureau of Land Management. You guys yes. are deep on the inside. You're gonna most people listen to this don't know <laughs> what the fuck you're talking about. That's right. So, um, different forests um, have different regulations as far as like how long you can stay camped in one spot. Um, typically, um, it's ten to fifteen days, and then you have to move again depending on where you are. X amount of, um, you know, sometimes it's 100 feet, sometimes it's 20 <laughs> miles, um, and then you can set up camp again. And just arbitrary rules? Days. It is not arbitrary. There's some smart folks out there that um, study the impact of man on the land, and they want to try to keep, you know, that pristine experience that we all love to go find right. there for everybody, and they have an incredibly tough job because their mandate, their federal mandate is to manage that land for everyone. How did you guys become a company that's so connected in people that do go into the outdoors and people that do hunt and, you know, enjoy your products? You guys are, like, really connected to public land conservation and, you know, and these do-it-yourself public land sportsmen. Like, you guys are, like, very, very connected in that world. Like, it's, you're very, it's a very respected company in that world. Thanks. I mean, you know, we do, we see it from all angles. You know, all of us have, you know, in the summertime, we'll, like I said, we'll ride mountain bikes and the wintertime backcountry skiing. And it's all of a sudden, you know, and then hunting, of course, it's huge, but you just see it from all angles, like places that where you recreate 365 days a year, all of a sudden you start to get sucked up. And it's just like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, like if this wasn't, if we didn't have public lands, we wouldn't have a business, right? It, 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 it would just, it wouldn't exist. You it wasn't know? a committee decision. Yeah. Our, right. our board of trustees didn't say it's high time. We... <laughs> well, yeah. if you look at the United States being only founded in 1776, and you just look at the massive amount of land we occupy now, with there's just the greater Los Angeles area where there's 30 million people and you know you go up all through the Pacific Coast Highway and just see all the cities and see all the buildings and see all the stuff that you would encounter if you try to try to drive from California to New York the only thing 
that's stopping that whole fucking area from being covered with buildings and malls and gas stations and anything else they can stick in there is the fact that it's public land. It's a, that it's it's federally owned land and you can't build on it. There's some folks that want that. They want it. We yeah. drove that, uh, what is it, Trapanga, Topanga Canyon? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I was like, oh, there's a good-looking house. And I was like, oh, God, there's houses everywhere in here. Yeah. And then we came around the corner, and there's a sign that says, open space, X amount. I was like, yeah, cover that open space up. Get yeah. rid of that stuff. <laughs> it said that? Yeah. Open space? <laughs> it said open wonder space. wonder what they mean by that. wonder if it's like Oh, it had an acreage owned. sign on it right there, and it was like. Like a park? Oh, no, like a for sale sign. Oh, Just saying, open like, hey, space this, for sale. This yeah. space is still open. Yeah, there's a lot of development up there. Topanga is very unusual, though, because if you live in Los Angeles, you could be in Topanga and look like you're in the woods. It's cool, I got to say. And right now, it's all greened up. It's beautiful up there. Oh, right now, it's spectacular. Right now, I mean, it would trick you. If you came here from somewhere else, you're like, oh, my God, this is the most beautiful place ever. Then you come back in August. You're like, this is a fire hazard. we got to get out of here. Everything's dry, and people are throwing cigarettes out their car windows. Kenton's a serious audiophile, so when we were driving up the road, you know, we opted to go over the Pacific Coast Highway and then come over that way um, out of L.A., and Kenton's like, oh, man, I bet Neil Young walked walked through that door a hundred (laughs) times. Yeah, I bet he had. I mean, there was a house that was for sale in Topanga, and I found out about it before. It was was already sold by the time I found out about it, but it was uh, a house that Jimi Hendrix owned. It's like, fuck, I would buy a house that Jimi Hendrix owned in a heartbeat. Buy a garbage can that he owned. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that whole place was just, it's hippies galore up there. It's a really interesting spot. Yeah. Uh, uh, 621? Yeah, uh, HR six twenty one. Uh, what J- does HR stand for? Uh, I believe it's House Rule, right? Is that right? So. No, we're gonna have to Google that up. I'm, I'm not real good on some of the nuts. Jamie will get it for us. But uh, six twenty one was um, basically uh, to authorize the sale of pre-approved uh, lands, three point three million acres of uh, federal federally managed lands that uh, had been designated as um, basically disposable. disposable, right? Now, how do they decide what's disposable and what's not? That's a fantastic question. Yeah. I've asked it a ton, and I don't know. I don't. I certainly haven't talked to anybody who was on that committee. That came up uh, under Clinton, I believe. Three million acres. Yeah, 3.3 million acres. That seems acres. like a lot. Oh. Jesus. It's like it a is. state. It, yeah. And HR. It, yeah. HR just means it started in the House. Okay. So House of Representatives HR. Oh, okay. Cool. Okay. And, um, and then uh, 622. So 621's off. Right. Right. Now. Well, so, the guy pulled it after mm-hmm. the backlash, and his name is Jason Chavitz. Is that how you say his name? Yep. Representative Jason Chavitz of Utah. Of Utah. And what's crazy is this guy's a hunter and a fisherman, apparently. And he took a picture with him wearing camo. Hey, guys, I'm one of you. Come on, yeah. stop attacking me. Because yeah. <laughs> as soon as people found out about this bill, his comments on his Instagram page were just overwhelmed with hunters. He just took over his Instagram comments, you know, and were really upset. And some people kept it classy. A lot of people didn't. And I'm sure he felt that the the heat of that. Yes. 
Absolutely. Which is really interesting. Like now, because of social media, because of guys like you guys, and I mean, there was a million people, the Gritty Bowman, Ranella, uh, I got involved. There's a lot of people involved, and there's a lot of different, you know, you look at all the, if you calculate all our followers up of all the different people that were making posts about this, it reaches a lot of people. And then it, it gets people who might have been like me before I went with you guys to Montana, who just might have been curious, like, what is this all about? Then you read into it, and then you start looking into this public land system that we have and how unique and beautiful it is. And you just go, wow, they want to sell that? Yes. And Paul Ryan had proposed that as well, right? Didn't he propose selling it off to pay some, some of the land off to pay for the debt? It's something that comes up uh, all, all too frequently. Because, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's something that we've watched, you know, state by state by state. Um, do you know it's like you get a bad fire season um all of a sudden you're up to your eyeballs in debt and it's raise taxes or it's um, sell off some land sell off some land yep. it's so short-sighted you know when you you think about the possibility that this land could not be there for your children or your children's children like it's been for us and it's been for our grandparents i mean it's just an amazing system that we have here and what is hr 622 okay so hr 622 is right now it, it is very black and white. It's basically to remove um, federal law enforcement officers, LEOs, um, which um, the BLM has its own law enforcement officers, um, Forest Service has its own law enforcement officers, um, remove those and then give county law enforcement uh, the authority to enforce laws on the federally managed lands huh so if their resources are tight which they are they probably wouldn't stop poachers they probably wouldn't do a good job of keeping people of you know making a mess out of the place yes yeah and basically what it does is it sets the federal land system up to fail it's like a booby trap it's like all right now we're gonna pull you know all this all these resources out and then five years later it's like oh look what a disaster it is now it's moving to state you know what I mean? It's just, right. right. So it's it's weakening the structure of it to facilitate a collapse. Yes. Correct. And there's nothing there's nothing against county law enforcement here. The the thing is, it's like you know, you go grab your local sheriff or sheriff's deputy and say, hey, uh, you know, how many mushrooms can I pull off of this burn on you know the Cibola National Forest? I mean, that guy's going to look at you cross-eyed. You know, uh, ask them how many cords of wood you can go up and cut for your fireplace in the winter. You know, the guy's not going to have a clue because it's not not his job. He's right. got bigger fish to fry. Got totally different laws, right. right, for federal state, for federal versus state. And, yeah, I mean, it's a different job. Now, what, explain to people, what is the difference between BLM and the other organizations that control public land? Okay, so... Um, Bureau you know, of Land Management... Yeah, so the Homestead Act, right? Uh, go west, young man. Everybody gets uh, 140 acres. Um, the uh, so basically, we got pushed a lot of people out onto this big open space because uh, you know the east needed money, so we really need to populate these areas and start the economy rolling again. Um, the basically the areas that failed, like a lar large chunk of the Missouri breaks is block land management or bureau land management um the areas that failed and were not hospitable um became blm ground and basically the impetus of blm is um 
they're they're more revenue focused than um, your Forest Service lands are. So BLM um, are, is is more focused towards grazing. Um, so leases like oil and gas grazing. Um, and the grazing lease was the big thing with the Bundys. That correct. was the big thing up in Oregon where there's a standoff with the the Rangers and all that jazz, which is mm-hmm. fucking chaos. Chaos. But they owed a ton of money. Yeah. And they didn't, you know, didn't want to pay it. They yeah. owe a ton of money. Yeah, yeah. they still do. Well, how does that work? Because like, we've been on hunts before. Like we were recently with uh, Ranella and crew. We were in Nevada and we were on a mule deer hunt. And, you know, you'd be stalking on a mule deer, and these fucking cows were everywhere. I mean, everywhere. I mean, if you were hunting cows, boy, you would be golden. <laughs> like, dude, we're eating good tonight. There's yes. fucking cows everywhere. But we were hunting deer, so you, you would have to get away from the fucking cows to get to the deer. And the cows would sometimes spook, and then the deer would realize that the cows saw something, and they would boing, boing. Uh, yeah. Yep. Or the cows would want to come check you out. Yeah, and that the, you would yeah. step in cow shit everywhere. And I was like, this is so crazy. Like, how are these... How does this work? And, you know, they were trying to explain to me that these people just sort of let these cows wander through. And that we, we found that in Montana as well. Yep. And people we, just let their cows wander all over the place, and then they round them up. Yep. And that's something. So the, you know, we, the people, have, a, have these programs in place to where we lease that ground. Um, I, I would say... More often than not, if not a hundred percent of the time, far below market value to uh, you know the rancher, and it's right of first refusal. So the first guy to say, "Hey, I want to graze my cattle on this property," he's his name's going to be on the lease until he doesn't want it anymore, and it and it comes up for a renewal. And then um, you know there's uh, rangeland biologists um, who go out and they say, "This is how many days." And how many, um, you know, animal cow-calf units um, can be grazed on this area for this long? And doesn't that affect local wildlife as well? Because I would assume if you're having your animals graze on this land, they're eating a lot of stuff that the deer would eat, or maybe a lot of the other wildlife would eat. But you got to keep call. in mind, man. The- Is it a tough call? I mean, yeah. I mean, for we are, you know, the the in the lowlands, it's the antelope and the and the uh, and the antelope and the cows live pretty harmoniously. In fact, a lot of that, you know, if there's a lot of grain they use to a lot of cow feed, then you know, it, it could help. When done properly, it, it, it works really well because, you know, basically our beef has replaced our bison, right, our buffalo. Right. So there was a major grazer out there prior to the beef being out there. Um, you know, super dense grasslands are good for some things, but, you know, oftentimes your upland birds need open areas um, uh, for, you know, picking up scratch and it's better for the bugs and a number of reasons. So. When that system's respected and done well, um, it's it's good for everybody, or can be good for everybody. Now, what are your opinions? That you, I'm sure you guys are aware of this whole American Serengeti project that they're trying to do in the Midwest of this country, or in the middle of this country, which is really quite fascinating. They're trying to buy up private land and turn it into what they think was essentially like what America was before people came here. Yes, and I am not... I'm not super studied up on it, but yeah, that is the kind of the nuts and bolts of it. And at the end of the day, if it's going to be privately held, and I, th- I want to say Nature Conservancy, American Prairie Reserve, there it is, right there. 
this is uh, a little piece on it that uh, Jamie just pulled up. But, you know, I mean, they want to reintroduce bison, like wild bison, all throughout areas of Wyoming. It's Montana, Wyoming. There's a bunch of different areas, right? Where is it? Yeah, ultimately? I mean, it's bigger been, than I know Yellowstone. it's been talked about in a number of different states. But, yeah, I think it is, you know, kind of the traditional, you know, the, um, yeah, the kind of the Oklahoma, uh, South Dakota, North Dakota, like the the true prairie region there. Where it used to be, like, giant herds of buffalo wandering through the land. They want to recreate that. Yes. And they're also going to open up block management on that, right? So this is going to be an area, like, once it gets established and once there's populations of animals there, then people are going to be allowed to hunt those animals. Yeah, and, I mean, if if that's the case, that's great. Like I said, I haven't been super studied up on it, but, you know, I, I mean, I love the idea, man. I mean, I... It's fascinating, you know, that they're doing this and buying up private land that's right now being used for whatever, and they're going to turn it into public land, and they're going to allow people to uh, to go there. And you're going to be able to see, like, great herds of bison roaming through some of these states. I mean, that that's going to be incredible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's something we always talk about on this uh, land transfer stuff. You know, once it's gone, it's gone. So if these guys are out there trying to make some more of it, yeah, uh, I say good on them. Yeah, I, I, I mean, they like literally it. are trying to make more public land, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. What are they going to do about predators? Are they going to bring in predators? Are they going to bring in wolves and... Man, if they're going to say that, Jamie, here we go. Uh, does the APR attend, uh, intend to reintroduce predators such as wolves, grizzly bears, which are historically present in the region? As a non, uh, as a private nonprofit organization, American Prairie Reserve does not have the authority to reintroduce species to the area, even if those species were historically present. Species reintroduction falls under the jurisdiction of Montana Fish and Wildlife Parks and or the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and any decisions regarding the reintroduction of wolves or grizzlies in the region will need to be made by these agencies, augmented by the will of the general public. Interesting. Yeah, reintroducing grizzlies is a fucking tough sell. I'll yeah. tell you people, right now, people the grizzlies like, are going for it, though. Oh, in Montana, it's crazy, yes, right? That area that you and I were in, yeah, uh, Missouri Breaks, I mean, that's east of the mountains, right? Right. Um, they Every other year or so, they catch some loner, um, typically a young male grizz, way out in the prairie. And it just looks like he's just kind of naturally getting funneled down to the Missouri breaks, which, you know, is historic range for them. And uh, somewhere along the way, he get you know, his hunger gets the best of him, and he knocks over some sheep, and right. that's kind of the end of him. But <laughs> I mean, they're wolves, close. it's going to be the same thing. Wolves are going to come whether you like it or not. Yeah, how do you guys feel about wolves? Because you guys are in Idaho, and Idaho has a really interesting relationship with wolves, where it's a real love-hate relationship. Like, I gotta imagine, it's gotta be cool as fuck to be out at night and hear, It's interesting. I gotta say. It's amazing. So at first, Hair I think sure. it was, it, before you could hunt wolves, and before that was, it was totally unchecked, it, it, the elk hunting sucked. Because they killed all the elk. Because they came in, the elk didn't know what was going on. They hadn't had wolves there in a long time, over 100 years. And then explain to people that there's a reintroduction of wolves into the Yellowstone region in 1990-something or another. Six, maybe, or two. It it was... I'm not positive when it started, but and then, this was not voted on either. This is a really controversial subject sure. among sports people and also among wildlife people. A lot of wildlife people completely support it. They think it balances out the ecosystem and that the undulates, like the elk and the deer, were running rampant. And they were destroying a lot of the grasses and the plants that would 
like provide homes for a lot of other animals and that this whole thing was kind of unbalanced just like with beef man overgrazing is mm-hmm. a bad deal yeah. so. absolutely but our, so you know prior to us being able to hunt them and stuff um it was it it really was skewed I, the elk had no idea how to deal with the wolves so for instance a pack of wolves would come in the bull a bull would go out and try to fend off the wolves and the, it would just get crushed by the wolves you know right a bull elk anything yeah Yeah. full bull elk right Right. but nowadays after maybe living together for and i mean i've seen this it's in my happening in my neighborhood like as we speak there's wolves in my neighborhood right now and it literally you can tell when the wolves are around the elk they pot up kind of um kind of get into a circle and they they don't try to go out and fight one-on-one they'll just sit there and the wolves will kind of come in and they work together, it, it, you know, and and it's it's an interesting it's an interesting. Our, our elk hunting's quite good, and it and the elk don't run. They don't run. They don't split off. They've kind of figured out this symbiosis, like how to live with wolves. It's it's an interesting thing. That's fascinating because they always did live with wolves, you know, until yes. people came along, right? And well, and elves tradition, or elves. What am I talking about? <laughs> oh, this is where my mind is. Uh, elk traditionally, before people came around, there's a debate as to whether or not they were mountain animals at all, right? They were. But they spent more time. They're the the animals. Yeah. Star- starved, going through the Nez Perce territory, right? Like they, there was so little game in the mountains when they were out there. That's one of the major arguments mm-hmm. for that. But, right. Um, yeah, you know, there's. There were animals covering the prairies, if if you you know believe every word of those Lewis and Clark journals. Well, it kind of makes sense if you think about it, because if you see the way they're adapting to wolves, and every animal adapts. I mean, there's a crazy documentary right now. I mean, this is a little bit off topic, but on Netflix about rats. It is so fucking disturbing. If you haven't seen it, it's amazing. It's but called Rats. It's called Rats. I've heard about it. Morgan yeah. Spurlock, the guy mm-hmm. who did uh, Super Size Me and a bunch of other documentaries, he created this. Woo! Rats, like, they're gross. Everybody knows they're gross. You know, you just when they start pulling parasites, they catch a bunch of rats, start pulling parasites out, and they're like, well, this one will kill you if you have an open wound and this gets yeah. on you, you're well, fucked. Well, the Black Plague, right? Yeah. That's, it all came from rats, yeah. yeah. And geez, they, they pulled a bot fly out of this one rat that was literally the size of its head. Oh. It's just oh. like this gigantic thing. And then at the end of it, they kind of explain, like, one of the, the guys who's an exterminator explains how smart rats are and how much they adapt. And what they'll do is if there's poison or if there's traps, they literally, the smart rats, the older rats will hang back and they'll let a young, weaker rat go towards the food. And, you know, his, he gets his fucking head crushed by the, the trap and they go, yep, I thought something was fucked up about that. Let's get out of here. And you, they, you, you never kill them all. Like to be able to kill them all, the most effective method that they were using in this documentary was dogs. They had a bunch of terriers. It was terriers, in England. Yeah. Oh, yeah, these little right. fucking wolf dogs, cute little dogs, Fox man. Dogs. Little cute little dogs. You would think, oh, little sweetie, those little fucking Jack Russell terriers. Those little suckers were meant to kill rats. That's why they made them. And they just run after these rats, and they're all ripping them apart. It is ruthless and brutal, <laughs> but it just highlights the adaptation that animals undergo when there's pressure. Any kind of pressure makes them adapt and change, and they just sort of figure out what the fuck the problem is. Yes. Brian Callen on the way. It I, was... uh, I grabbed a... Or yeah, there there, there it is. This is a scene in it. 
I mean, oh, there we go. Look at those things are pissed. Oh my god. These little fuckers are monsters, <laughs> man They Jeez. just crush these rats and they rip them apart like they play tug-of-war with these rats It is in the this is a this is not in the movie, right? This is just something else yeah, This is just on YouTube called ratting or something. ratting. Yeah, and this is how they rid the countrysides of rats in like really they, heavy areas They don't eat them though. They just kill no, them, they right? just crush them. Well, sometimes they eat them in the movie They were eating some of them speaking to the uh, parasite side of things Kent and I were cruising down, uh, uh, where were we last night? See a Kardashian? Ventura Boulevard. <laughs> no? <laughs> there is a possum. Yeah. Same Cal, thing. Cal grabbed the possum by the tail. Bro, I thought it might have been You grabbed it? I couldn't help myself. It's yeah. the first possum I've ever <laughs> seen. like a good idea at the time. <laughs> yeah. You've never seen a possum before? I've never seen a possum. How's that possible? You're I, in the woods 300 days a year. We're not in Montana, possums. man. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So I grabbed the thing by the tail because I wanted to see if it'd play dead, right? Right. That's the thing. And then immediately I just ran inside, washed my hands because I was like, oh, yeah. God. Yeah. I'm in L.A. and I grabbed a possum. Oh, <laughs> That's yeah. a dirty possum. Yeah, it's got AIDS for yeah. sure. It's got yeah. possum AIDS. But the, so the adaptation thing is 100% true. Like, yeah. Those elk got punished mm-hmm. when the wolves were you know, coming on the scene. And they just figured it out. And, and pr- pr- prior out. to that, they all got punished by people and they moved into the mountains. They realized, look, these people, the, the lazy ones, they want to pull up in their truck and fucking shoot off the hood and uh, just stay away from cars. Let's, hey, guys, let's, get, let's go up here. That's it's yeah. hard for them to go up here. Yes. They get tired. There's not that much air. Let's go higher. The wolves are super smart, right? Oh, they yeah. don't mess around. Like, they, if once the bullets started flying, they would, you know, they were... You know, that's like, you know, there's a wolf quota and rarely in our unit does it get met, you know, so yeah. it's, I don't now know. Now explain that to people that are the uninitiated. So what it is, is the wildlife biologists, and this is a really controversial topic because when they reintroduced wolves, there was a target population that they wanted to reach and they felt like we could reintroduce these wolves. And what's interesting is they got them from Canada and the guy that trapped them, the, the legend holds, he just found the nastiest, biggest, like, oh, you guys want to bring wolves? Because in Canada, like where, where I got this moose in BC, they have so many wolves that uh, Mike Hawkridge, my buddy who lives up there, one of his neighbors, they, they took out a cow. And, you know, they, they'll just get these big packs and they'll just fucking attack things. They and roll in at least like four to, you know, f- a, f- a pack of four is small. I mean, there's yeah. nine of them. And, but all right, one, I'm not like some wolf hater, right? No, no, no. By no, any no. means. But it's, it is, they are gnarly predators. Like I've seen them, you know, kill stuff. And it's, I don't know, it's, it's interesting to me how people have this real soft spot for wolves. Like, they're amazing creatures, and they amazing. can do amazing things. They can travel amazing distances, but nice they are not. And it's not like this furry kind of thing. They're they're pissed. Well, people think of them as dogs because they look a lot like huskies. They, we think of them as some beautiful forest creature that lives this natural existence, and they do. But they're also fucking ruthless predators. Yes. And they are the only predator in North America like that, that size, that operates in packs. Mm-hmm. And that's some scary shit. I mean, coyotes kind of do it, but they're a lot smaller. And, you know, it's just they're, they're more going after rodents and, and fawns and little right, things yeah. that they can get a hold of. Wolves will take out a fucking full-blown elk. You come across a kill, and it's... That thing did not die in any sort of a nice Disney sort of way. No. Oh, boy. An amazing... From the back to the front, almost we, always. When we were in um, um, BC, in that place where I was getting to with uh, my friend Mike Hawkridge up there, we uh, came across a kill. It was pretty fresh. It was a, uh, a calf, a moose calf, and it was just 
the, what, what the stunning thing about it is, first of all, it was pretty fresh. Like you look down at it, like it probably happened the night before, maybe at the very earliest, like a day ago. And there was fucking hair everywhere. Like that's what I didn't expect. Somehow or another, I thought like, like oh, I didn't expect to see so much hair. But it's like almost like they shaved it. And it yeah. stays for like a long time. You know, you could come in the next summer and it'll be just this big. It looks like a carpet. Well, up there in BC where he lives, you can shoot as many wolves as you want. There's no quota. The reason being is that there's so many of them. They have to control the population, and they're so fucking smart. They're really hard to kill. And so these people that have cows up there and their various uh, farm animals up there, I mean, they're constantly under pressure. They're constantly under threat of these wolves. And as well as him, Mike shot a wolf that came at him and jumped at him off of a ridge. Oh. He was going up a ridge, rifle in his hand, and he had uh, made some howls. You know, he, he can yeah. imitate a wolf's howl. And the wolf saw him and literally was jumping at him and he shot it in the air. That is That's amazing. That's yeah, like full Africa style, right? And he's got this wolf mounted Ooh. in his house like wow. this with his feet up to remind him. Of that scene, I mean, that easily could have been the end of him. I mean, if he's up there without a without a gun, that wolf could easily oh, have killed him. It's the teamwork you, it's the worst aspect. End yeah. End oh yeah. The oh yeah. It would be horrific. The worst. So we called in a wolf. So, yeah, the, the, we should go back to like the quota thing because this is kind of a pet peeve of mine. Right. Like, people look. I, I try to encourage everybody at the office to go to our local fish and game meetings and the the town hall meetings and things that happen there in Ketchum, Idaho. And um, the one of the arguments that came up was just so backwards, but it came from a place of, I can see the logical sequence here, but typically if there's a really, really long hunting season on something, it means that hunters are doing a really bad job of filling their tags. Right. right. Okay. So if there's a really short season, it typically means that hunters are doing a really efficient job of filling their tags. So we have this very long season on wolves. And um, several people from town stood up at the fishing game meeting and said, hey, this is just immoral that, you know, we we're putting hunting pressure on wolves for eight months out of the year. And the truth of the matter is, is hunters, myself included, are doing a very, very poor job of putting a tag on these things. And I've, I've called in one in our area, and it was an absolutely amazing experience. But, uh, you know, basically our south-facing slopes are wide open, our north-facing slopes are heavily timbered. And I could hear the wolf calling below. My uh, friend of mine, Jim, uh, is an amazing shot, uh, old retired Forest Service dude. And... Uh, he got set up for the shot. I'm calling at the wolf. As the wolf's coming up the mountain, it all of a sudden starts making noises that I just cannot make. So I kind of knew I was screwed, right? Um, but it was ama- the vocal range is unbelievable. And what I kind of what, what like just like barks and wolves, like wolves and growls. Like it just sounded like this thing was getting more and more pissed off the closer it got to us. And that was my job, right? I was like, I'm going to make this thing so pissed that it just keeps coming. And Jim's going to get a shot at it. And that thing broke the tree line at probably 500 yards, made it at a dead sprint about 60 yards from the timber, all of a sudden hit the brakes, turned around, was gone. And that is the closest I have ever gotten to killing a wolf in Idaho. And saw it for maybe a second. Now, 
he, but there's a lot of people that are listening to this going, why the fuck would you want to kill a wolf, man? You know, what do you got, a little dick? Dick doesn't work. You know, that always, that's the big one that always comes up. Is your dick so small, man? You want to kill a wolf? What I think is lost on people who don't encounter wolves or who don't understand the science behind wildlife management is that there is nothing else that's going to control their population. It's only going to be people. They're going to survive through the winter. They're going to eat as many elk as they can, as many deer, as many whatever the fuck they can get a hold of as they can. And especially since they had this kind of crazy head start before the animals figured out that they were there, because they'd never been there in over 100 years since they were extirpated from the American Southwest. And the you know what they had done was, with wolves, they had shot like horses like wild horses then injected him with strychnine right yeah and then they had shot like an alpha wolf and rubbed his scent and his glands all over the meat so that the other wolves knew that he had been there so they thought it was okay to eat that stuff and so they would eat it they would get the strychnine and they would die and they it was a mass kill off the and judas they, wolf yeah yeah judas wolf yeah yeah um yes yeah, so yeah there is management right and the thing is like one of the hottest topics in our area was um in the winter especially a heavy winter right now all your game animals get congregated um in lower elevations typically on these south facing slopes that get a lot of sun heavy winters like we're experiencing right now these animals are basically pushed into that farm and ranch country and those um operators down there are feeding their winter livestock um and the wolves and the coyotes are right in on top of everybody in calving seasons right now. So then you get uh, typically a very large... Um, mortality you know, rate. Yeah, mortality rate spikes because you got animals that are in distress and there's, you know, afterbirth from the birthing process everywhere. You got easy pickings on the calves and uh, hunters aren't knocking these numbers down. So the state... And, you know, like uh, Cattlemen's Association will go together and fund helicopter gunning, so aerial gunning to go out there and shoot those animals. So, um, you know, uh, I, I would love to hear the tiny dick argument. Um, well, you, <laughs> gotta, you want to kill a wolf because you got a tiny dick. Why would you want to kill a wolf? They're beautiful, magnificent creatures. Right. And they are. But it's important to recognize that there have historically been gigantic problems with wolves and people. That's where all the Little Red Riding Hood shit comes from. Uh, the wolves in Paris story, I'm sure you're aware of that story from the 1400s where they killed like 40 people in Paris. India. Before, yeah. I mean, right? Well, Paris has wolves in it again. Do you know that? No. Yes. They're, the people are being told, there was an article about it recently where people are being told to not fear the wolves that are in the streets of fucking Paris because they're only looking for four-legged prey. Like, these fucking people don't remember the story from the 1400s, this historical story where the, the people of Paris had to gather together with fucking spears and corner these wolves and kill them in the town square. It's an amazing story. That's you know, how crazy. much of it, you know, obviously when you're dealing with something from 1400, there's no like, yeah. film, so we don't right. really know how much of this is accurate. But it's a historical story that they had to kill a ton of wolves. And I'm sure you guys know about the story from World War One. The, yes. the Russians and the Germans had a ceasefire because so many of them were getting killed by wolves in Russia. They decided, let's go kill these fucking wolves, and then we'll go back to killing each other. I'd never heard that. You never heard that? It's a no. great story. It's a great story. I, I think, the, 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 I mean, the populace at large, what they, I think, uh, what they could benefit the most from is there's people on extreme 
lovers and extreme haters. But in the middle, there is somewhere in the middle, there's a right thing to do. And I think that the government definitely puts their best foot forward via scientists and whatever to figure out that balance, you know. And I think that to say that, you know, we need to have, you know, 10,000 wolves in Idaho is naive because that would happen, for, for instance, if they were just let, you know, right to procreate at will so i you know these people are trying to be good right that's the that's why they're calling them that's why you know that's why they reintroduced them to create a balance you know and i think that that's that needs to be realized both sides both sides both sides, both sides. the people Absolutely. that don't want any wolves to die they don't want wolves to die because wolves are amazing and then right. wildlife is amazing it's totally look, well you can go to yellowstone and I, I went this summer and you go and see a herd of buffalo just chilling on this field like you know, and I was there with my kids, and I was giving them the binos, and they're staring at these buffalo, and they're only like 100 yards away. And I'm like, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and my kids are like, those are wild. I'm like, those are wild. They go wherever they want. And like, that's like in their head. They're like, that's a wild, this just giant furry fucking Star Wars beast yeah. is a wild animal? <laughs> They'll never forget it. They'll never forget it. Yeah. And I mean, it, it was sinking in their head, too, that this is wild. You know, because it's one thing if you see something behind a fence and you go, oh, that's a cow. You know, we're at a farm. That's a cow. And I'm like, no, honey, those things live in the woods. They go wherever they want. There's no boss. No one tells them what to do. They just do whatever they want. Totally. Well, coming full circle, like the whole wild thing is that, you know, with public lands, people get to have these crazy wild experiences, i.e. by hunting. Like there's very little that things that you can do where you go out and it's it's raw. Right. Things can go sideways and, you know, you can get caught out that I mean, it's 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 a unique thing to be able to do to see these to experience this wild stuff. Yeah. And what you mean by get caught out there is like you could go somewhere and the weather can turn ugly and you can get snowed in. Get lost in the fucking mountains. Yeah. People die every day. Yeah. Bob uh, Bobcat Goldthwait had a really fun video, a movie rather that he did called Willow Creek. About and the, the the movie was about all the different people that get lost in the woods, and his movie was saying that Bigfoot was eating them. Right, fucking pretty ridiculous. But, <laughs> but or the, is it? Yeah, or is uh, it? But it was fun. Bobcat is a nut. He's he's a Bigfoot fanatic. I was like, I was trying to tell him from people that actually go to the woods. You know how many hunters see Bigfoot? Zero, zero. It's fucking zero. How many what? get hit by cars? Zero. Yeah. Right. Fucking zero. How many get caught on trail cams? Fucking zero. And you gotta that's the other thing. Like with the, the number of trail cams that exist today in, in you know in the woods that put people put up to scout to try to find out where the animals are. And then on top of that, the number of phones that people have that have cameras on them has gone through the roof, but the Bigfoot sightings have shrunk. There's way less of them. Interesting. And I UFOs too. My Bigfoot and UFO thinking. <laughs> when was the last time you saw a good UFO video? They're fucking not, yeah, non. Right. They're Damn. non. Our area. The magic is you gone. You were gonna see a UFO? You could. We have zero light pollution, right? And the oh, air yeah. quality is insane. Oh, like, you, you guys can, must have like crazy skies at night, huh? Oh, I mean, meteors, UFOs like, all over the place. Yeah, you guys must have beautiful night skies. Solid. Unreal. So we're, I mean, the office is just under 7,000 feet. And then within 20 minutes of the office, you can climb to 11,000 feet. Wow. Try breathing up there. It, uh, it's difficult. Bring one of these kettlebells up there. Get yourself a workout. You feel good. (laughs) You feel good. And then you have, you know, a couple days worth of stuff on your back and you're like, 
Yeah, why is it good. that you have to uh, drink so much water when there's high altitude? What's that it's about? Dr- just dry. Generally speaking, where we are, it's just low humidity, and you breathe, you know, every time you breathe out, you breathe out a little water. Right. Yeah, that's what the mist is when you see people at night, and it's cold. That stuff that's coming out of your mouth, that's that's actually water vapor. Right. And it exists all the time. You just don't see it because there's not a big difference in the, ch- the temperature between your body and the air like it is when it's really cold out. I think that's why people are more hungover in the mountains, too, huh? Certainly my excuse. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's got to be because you're dehydrated, too, which is the big factor exactly. in being hungover in the first place, right? Yeah. They, exactly. Like the people that are pros, they, they'll pound booze and they'll have a fucking jug of water. A buddy of mine drank with Jean-Claude Van Damme, and he said, uh, this is like way back when Jean-Claude Van Damme was a uh, you know, big movie star, yeah. doing all these big movies. He Blood said sport. he would do booze, and he had a fucking gallon of water with him. He brought like a milk jug size gallon filled with water. So he'd do a shot and fucking chug the water. Like he was really consciously boozing, which I've wow. never seen anybody do before. That's an aggressive Mindful guy. boozing. <laughs> Mindful boozing. <laughs> health <laughs> boozing. He was health boozing. That's a guy that's going, look, I'm not going to stop being a degenerate, oh. but I'm going to take care of my body in the process. He comes to catch him, so he used to, and we'd hear stories about looseness, but I don't know. I've never witnessed it myself. So. Looseness? You know, going to the bars and getting loose. Getting partying? Yes. He gets crazy and catch him? Apparently. Used to. Used Throw, to. Throws sidekicks off the roof and shit? Yeah, you know. Shots uh, for everyone? <laughs> shots. <laughs> First time I ever heard a wolf. Ooh. And this goes back to, like, the hair on your arm standing up. Um, I was working with a buddy of mine in the Frank Church Wilderness. Where's that? It's just straight north of Ketchum. It's the largest contiguous wilderness in the lower 48. Really? Yep. It's huge and it tried to get peopled right we tried to force people in there to mine it and farm it and it just didn't take so there's old homesteads and stuff and there's some eerie stuff like the missouri breaks yes yeah very very similar this is just you know on a kind of a grander scale um much more timber and stuff your guys first experience out there i think i still think about that because that was i would love to put some of these like land transfer people out there on that same trip oh yeah these guys showed up, it was like 34 degrees, trying to snow, mostly just rain, overcast, gray skies. It was perfect. Nothing merry about it. Yeah. yeah. It was awesome. That's the worst temperature to deal with. Well, then it got down to like nine, you know? Yes. It was getting but real cold towards the end. Right? It was fucking awesome, man. It yeah. was awesome because it's just, it, it's one of the things about being in the real wilderness is how like beautiful but lonely it is. It's kind of lonely. There's something weird about it. Like, you could die, and it doesn't give a fuck. Not, like, no. you have this illusion. Like, if you died right here, if you had a heart attack and tipped over, we'd all be bummed out. Like, God, we lost Ryan Callahan. I can't believe <laughs> it, man. And you know we'd be bummed out. But the woods wouldn't give a fuck. No. You would just, you'd fall dead, and everything would go. It's just the the humble, the feeling of humility and the the, the feeling of insignificance is so overwhelming and unavoidable. That it's just this intense realization of your peace, like where you are as a person, where you fit in in this grand, gigantic mandala of life. Yes. And it's, it's like... And it's amplified the, fur- the further you go back, you know, and you know you're a full day plus walk away, you know, or yeah. you get dropped off somewhere, you know, it's like, whoa, I whoa. mean, we're here and... You know, it's it's a it's a cool feeling though. That's the whole thing, right? You're outside your comfort zone. That's what makes it so pleasurable. 
My friend Adam Greentree went on a do-it-yourself hunt in Montana, an archery uh, mon- uh, elk hunt, and he went, I think he went at least 12 miles in. He might have went more. By himself. Shot an elk. Big fucker. Wow, Packed it out Jeez. by himself. Four days. Four days of pack out. So he's got 100 pounds on his back, and he's got to walk 12 miles back and forth for four days to get this elk out. That's heavy. For folks who don't know, that is four days of misery. That's yeah. not four days of looking around and enjoying no. whistling through the woods. Yeah, That's I mean, just work. And he's in decent shape. I mean, he works out a little bit, but he's not Cam Haynes. You know, he's not like some fucking crazy marathon ultra runner. Right. He's, uh, yeah, it's not his job to be fit. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, he's a professional bow hunter and he, he's got a mining job in Australia. And that's the other thing. He lives in Australia. So even though he brought all that meat back, he couldn't even take it home. He, he could only eat what he had here in America and, then, and donate it. Yeah, you can't bring it back to Australia. They don't allow that's it. It's a shame. Australian customs, they won't allow you but to bring in meat. But if you're four trips, so let's say he did uh, a little bit of meat and his entire camp out on the first trip, that's mm-hmm. three loads of just meat. 80 pounds a load. Yeah, I mean, that guy brought out a lot. He brought it all back. A lot. Yeah. He brought it all back over four days. But, you know, when he described it, like how brutal the experience was by himself shooting this animal. And then he called a buddy um, to uh, to help him. This guy helped him pack out a little bit. So So imagine your bones laying there on the prairie in eastern Montana. There's a good chance, because hunters do the same thing. Right, and game kind of does the same thing generation after generation, generation. Think about you tip over dead. There's a very good chance in that country there's probably like a crow or Sioux set of bones underneath you. Maybe somebody's horse, bison antiquus, all stacked up underneath you. Yeah. Like, it does not give a fuck. doesn't give there's a fuck. There's plenty of bones out there. Mm-hmm. You just join in the pile. And there's a whole system. Like, the idea of waste is ludicrous, you know? Like, if anything that dies, it's not going to waste. Like, you're not going to waste. Your dog dies out there. It's not going to waste. Something will eat it. Yes. And it is that is the whole system. There is a, a, I mean, it doesn't seem like it to you as a person. You're like, you're not supposed to eat Fluffy. He's my dog. No, that's a dog, and a dog is an animal, and an animal that dies, there is a whole system in place for handling that. For sure. Yes. I mean, from the wolves, then the foxes will come in, then the birds, and then, you know, then you and get the bugs, flies. bacteria, exactly. bugs, yes. everything, and it'll be gone. It'll be down to bones, and then eventually something will eat the bones. Did you just see takes time. Uh, the picture of the archery bulb I posted this year? Yeah. It just left the face on and then took all the meat off. You did an amazing job. That's so important to post, too, because... You didn't waste an ounce of that meat. You cut every, in between the ribs, you know, you were, I mean, and people were like commenting on that photo, like that is the respect that you give an animal when you hunt it and you shoot it. That's the right way to handle it. Yes, now the reality, and I, I think so too. And I I try to go above and beyond because the it tongue, is. He's organ, organ meat. meat yeah, guy, right? I'm an organ meat guy too. I love heart and liver. I'm medium on the organs. I gotta need, I'm gonna start with tongues this year. I was thinking about your liver, oh, dude, I had, that was the worst thing to be vocal about ever. <laughs> I used to, I used to get called up all the time. I'm like, hey, I got a tongue for you because I know you like them. Right now, it's you like, just overwhelmed with tongues. No, everybody keeps their tongue. <laughs> oh, they keep their tongues. They keep now. their damn tongues. Oh. Now I don't have any. Uh, yes, cast out of the bag. Yes, yeah. it is. But you will love it. But um, the 
thing is like, yeah, you should take every single thing, but there are little things that get wasted and like the, the rib meat chunks, especially later in the season when there's not a lot of fat on these animals. Like if it's, if it's going to take you some time to get out, that's the stuff that's going to get super dried out before it, you can even make something out of it. So um, you were saying about liver. Oh yeah. So you made a comment that you eat a lot of liver. Yeah. Like, is that, is that a typical L.A. dish around here? No. No. No, no it's me. It's just organ meat's really good for you. It's yeah. so high in vitamins and iron. It's just, and it's just something about it. It just feels good when I'm eating it. You know, that's, I'd read about wolves, that wolves, like, that's one of the ways that they, they, um, that they establish the alpha. The alpha is the one that eats the, the liver. When he ki- when they kill an animal, the alpha immediately really? eats the liver. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, there was this guy that was living with wolves, and he had these wolves sort of convinced that he was a wolf, and uh, it was he was a wildlife biologist and a wolf expert, and I forget where this was that he was doing it, but it was a whole documentary on it. And but one of the things it wasn't that they never did never cry wolf was it? I don't remember the name of it. Unfortunately, maybe Jamie can find it. But one of the things that this guy did was he would put a liver in a downed animal like they would kill an animal place it put a, a, a liver in it and he would eat the liver in front of the other wolves so that he would be the dominant male and where he got fucked up is he had to leave because he's a wolf expert and there was a farmer that was being inundated by wolves so they had set up this whole way to uh, keep the wolves away from this guy's property without killing him and one of the things that they did was they set up all these speakers and they projected the sounds of these alpha wolves with these giant speakers. So like, look, bitch, there's a new fucking king just moved into town. Everybody get the hell away from these sheep. And they set up these big ass speakers all over and it worked. But it took a long time to keep these wolves away, like a couple of months. And so when he came back, then there was a new alpha that had taken his place and he wanted to kill him. And it's a horrific scene where this guy is standing there whimpering in front of this wolf. And this huge wolf is in front of him, baring his teeth. And you're just thinking at any minute, this wolf is just going to tear this guy's fucking face off. Is this real? Oh, yeah. It's 100% real. Yeah, it's 100% gnarly. real. It's gnarly. When the wolf's in front of him, like, <laughs> and he's like, <laughs> and he's got to, like, hope that this wolf does not decide to attack him. That shows him mercy. Yeah. That he established a friendship with this wolf when he was the alpha. The point where it's going to accept the changing of positions, and he has to show no resistance to this change. So it's a really critical moment in his fucking life, man, because it might end right there with that wolf in a bad way. Yeah, I mean, you know, everything's happy when there's food around. So if if late in the season and food scarce, that would be a tough proposition to make. Yeah, yeah. Early in the season when everybody's happy, right. lots of calves on the ground, easy pickings. Yeah, I was reading this article about bears in this one region of uh, Alaska, where there's this salmon run, and it's uh, we had a video of it where there's a guy, I'm sure you've seen the video, because it's a famous video, where this guy is sitting there, he's got a little lawn chair, and they're taking photographs of the bears, and this fucking Volkswagen bus with Jug fur head. walks up to him and just hangs out. And there's no danger. There's no fear because this be- this bear is fat, and there's salmon everywhere. And the- as the guy pans away, he 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 goes, "Get out of here, bear!" And the bear, and the bear leaves. But I mean, it's a fucking fifteen hundred pound bear. It's an They're enormous, so big, enormous bear. I don't bear. think people even get how big they are. Until really. you're right there, you probably can't. No. But as this guy pans away, you see that there's just like a dozen bears in yes. this one area, and they're so well fed. This, histor- this area historically has an incredibly low incident 
uh, or low rate of attack. There's like like almost no attacks by bears on people in this one area. This is it. No, food is food is the deal. Look at that fucking thing. Oh yeah, you can see it in this one too. Oh my. I mean that is that's a tanker. Oh boy. Wait, did did we contact? Did you get a hold of Adam about that fucking TV? I told him to contact you. Did he contact? Oh okay. This, we gotta replace uh, this TV. August. Look at the size of that fucker. Just yeah. decides to sit down. We uh, behind you. This TV sucks. 40. It keeps cutting out. Yeah, so he's this guy has to chase his bear off. But now look, as the bear goes, all right, whatever. I mean, he's got a big fat belly. And you turn and you look down at the river and it's just overrun. <laughs> look behind you. Look behind you. Fuck that TV. That TV's such a piece of shit. But look behind you. Look at all those look at all those bears. I mean, that's insane. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. There's fourteen bears in just this limited perspective. And this guy's taking photos of them because it's just, and there's more. It's just overrun, just overrun with fish. So we they, were fishing up, up in Prince Wales off Steve's mm -hmm. fish shack up yeah. there. And, and uh, it, we had his little boy in the canoe. So there's three of us in the canoe. And we had, it was high tide and we paddled away up this creek. And there were six black bears in this creek that's, I mean, as wide as this room. And we're just sitting in the canoe and we kind of pushed the, the uh, bow of the canoe on this stick so it'd hold us in place and steve's kid you know being a kid he's like bears are bad bears are scary it's like what are we doing here but you could watch these bears take turns and there's one laying in this creek and as the salmon would the water's dropping right the tide's going out so the salmon would come up the bear would wait for one to be easy grab it walk into the woods the next bear would come down, lay in the same spot, and just wait. So it was like a line. It was a food line. And wow. everybody was totally cool with each other. They're like, it, we're all going to yeah. get some. Yeah, yeah, plenty of food, no conflict. I mean, isn't that the same with people? Yeah. yeah I mean, right? it's like kind of universal amongst all species. So as resources get scarce, shit gets weird. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and that... That is one of the things that's sort of important to bring up when people are talking about wolves and predators and populations like you can't ensure that these things are going to have an adequate food supply, especially as their numbers grow higher and higher. It's it's a really controversial subject. And I think the one thing that people don't understand from the outside that really don't understand the whole idea of hunting predators, they... I feel like you really kind of have to be there. I feel like you kind of have to like almost be just really involved in that whole ecosystem. Just be there physically to kind of get it. To... I, I think that's probably accurate. Like I think it would be almost odd to be like, I'm going to go shoot this, some animal right. you've never seen, know nothing. You know what I mean? There mm -hmm. would be, there's a certain cruelty to that, but maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But once you're, once you've seen the cycle, like in person, it kind of, I don't know, it brings everything together, if you will. You see, like, you know, wow, that's interesting that, you know, that, that, that they're, um, you know, that they're around now. And I, I hope they don't get too many of them, but, you know, maybe it's a good thing. And maybe, you know, certainly in our unit, things are, elk-wise, are fine. Well, balance is so super important, which is one of the reasons why places like New Zealand are so odd. Because they incredibly brought over, odd. incredibly odd, they brought over all these animals in the, what is it, like the 1800s, uh, the Europeans brought them over, England brought them over, is that what I, it was? Yeah. Might I mean, have been I earlier think than it that. Was earlier than that, all the way to, because I think, God, I think Roosevelt gave them 
uh, Canada geese and the mallard duck in like 1905 or something like that. So what they did was they brought all these animals over there with no predators at all. And so they have wild stags and these red deer and all these different animals that are not native. And they're overrun to the point where they have to do helicopter runs on fucking stag. They have to fly over and fucking poison. Like yeah. they'll poison a whole valley because the possums or whatever go crazy, you know, and there's nothing left to control it. It's nuts. And you got to think the thinking was no predators. This is going to be great. Everybody's yeah. going to get along and it's going to be and we'll have food. Well, the idea the was that New Zealand was going to be an exotic hunting ground for the wealthy. It was going to be like a Texas ranch. For like the English those, or something? Yes. Really? Yes. They were going to come over and they were going to jolly good time. I'm going to go hunt a stag. Hmm. Wow. And they would go over there. And um, so they put these animals there, but then they just, there's nothing killing them other than people. And so they're just fucking like crazy and making baby stags and just, woo, this is a party. It's plenty of food. It's all lush and green. It re rains like crazy. So there's plenty of food. It's beautiful place. Oh, stunning. Kenton's been over there. I have not made it yet. Did yeah. you hunt over there? Yeah. What was, was it like? Fun. It was cool. We just um, kind of went over there and met our, uh, our some of our wool growers, and they rented a helicopter, and they kind of dropped us off in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> so, they said, we'll see you in a couple days? Yeah, exactly. They dropped us off on top of this hill. We I was ready to get out of the bird, frankly. It was like crushing snow. and I mean, I, I don't, I've been in helicopters a solid amount, and I don't love them, and I was like... I'll walk back. Like, let's get down. So we got down and, you know, and just made our way out. Ended up shooting a really nice chamois. Oh, um, those are really wild-looking animals. Wild, yeah. I mean, we didn't even know, like, how big anything. We were just out there and we're like, oh, there's a chamois. Shot and it. Those aren't there. native to that area either. No, no. We took it apart and, pe you know, put it, got all the meat and everything and started walking out and almost left the head there. And then, like, let's bring the head, you know. It turns out it's some, you know. It was like an SCI gold. <laughs> and we had never seen one before. They're all so small. You know, they taste phenomenal. So that night we got it out. It was a SCI gold? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. You're saying like was, the size of it? It was like yeah, a trophy-sized animal yeah, or something? Yeah. And it was, which I thought which was Which is how they funny. score all that stuff. It's they not, do it in gold? They have like gold, silver, silver, right. bronze? It's, yeah. You know, the huh. inches. Right. But then it puts you into a different category. So it's so. like a 400-inch elk. Yeah, like that kind of yeah, thing, or probably. a two hundred inch whitetail. Like there's this, yeah, there's this number, yeah. yeah, like a number that very few people ever achieve, right? Yes, but it was, um, I don't know. I'm not a huge number. Of course, I like to pay attention, but whatever. But um, it's super yummy. Chamois, like super good. What does it taste like? It just kind of tastes like, I don't know, like lamb. Like, I would say a cross between like a lamb wow, and a really thing. good whitetail. Look at that thing. What a weird yeah. animal, isn't it? Wow. And they're everywhere. Whenever I see a big fat guy with a dead animal with a rifle, I feel like there's something wrong there. Yeah. I like mean, how, how does that guy get up there? How, how, you know, I feel like you should, I mean, this is totally ignorant on my part and very biased, but I feel like you should have to be in shape to kill something that lives up there. When I see a fat guy, I just figures out a way how to do it. I'm like, all right, Getting fatso. short roped in. Yeah, I guess yeah. that's what we call it. <laughs> short roped? What's that mean? Yeah. yeah, like when guys climb Everest that are not fit, they'll have a guide that just basically short puts a short rope on and drags says, them. Basically, yeah. Really? Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. Aggressive guiding. What is? Yeah. What the on. fuck is wrong with someone that doesn't get fit and wants to climb Everest? 
I just think that they have no idea what it's like to be above 8,000 meters. Like they might sit there and, you know, go on the treadmill every single day. And I don't, I don't know. 8,000 meters is what's really important because 8,000 feet sucks. Yeah. I used to, I lived, when I lived in Boulder, we were at 8,500 feet and I would do uh, my kettlebell routine at 8,500 feet. And it was just like, it was like trying to like run through water. It was like, Jesus Christ, this is hard to do. Yeah. It was incredibly hard to do. It was so much more difficult than it is to do at sea level. I couldn't imagine what 8,000 meters is like. Not really. It's like 3%. I think you lose th something like 3% efficiency every 1,000 feet. You come Whoa. down to sea level and you every feel like... Every 1,000 feet. Every 1,000 so 8, feet. 8,000 meters. You're talking about... 24,000, 25,000, 26,000 feet. Yeah, right? that's insane. It's insane. It's insane. Yeah, you come down to sea level and for me, I'm like, ah, running's pointless. This is... Been running for a while now. Don't really feel anything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was one thing that I noticed when I did live up there for, it was only like for four months, but when I'd go down a sea level, I felt like I could fucking run through walls. Yes. Like now I get why those guys like train at elevation and then right. go and fight at sea level because that's a big thing with fighters. A lot of them yeah. like train in Denver or up here, they go to Big Bear. Sure. It goes away fast though. It literally, Real quick. It's like you're, you're, you, you're, you acclimate here, probably back down. I don't know. It seems like not five days in your, you know. Mm. It takes the same when you go back up, though. If you've been at sea level for a while, you go back up. It takes a while before you're kind of Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think they say that the best way to do it is actually to train at low altitude, but to live at high altitude. So, because you can put in more work. So, like, uh, you go sense. down sure. for the training. Like, say, if you were next to Big Bear, you would drive down. And then train at like, you know, wherever down there and then bust your ass in San Bernardino or whatever and then go back up the hill and sleep and eat and do all your stuff at high altitude. So where your high workload is, like for the maximum efficiency of your training. Because you can get 100 mm -hmm. reps in at low elevation. Exactly. Right. Okay, gotcha. Get more work in. You can do more work. You can, and you can do also like for fighting, it's super important to not be tired while you're doing certain technical work. Like, you, you're going to be a certain amount of tired, but you don't want to be exhausted. Because your brain doesn't work, right? No, you drop your hands, you develop shitty skills, you, you, you start uh, making errors in your technique, and those errors in your technique will manifest themselves under pressure. So it's like, one of the things about fighting is it's super important that you do everything in training exactly how you would do it if your fucking life depended on it. And if you don't, you're going to pay a price. Like, guys who slack off in training... They almost never become champions. I mean, unless you're some physical freak who can get away with it. The, the reality is, in order to compete against like-minded people that are also phenomenally fit and motivated and understand the consequences of not being fit and motivated and, and well-trained, you have to do everything right. And especially now, like MMA, you can get away with a lot. When I started uh, doing commentary in 1997, you could get away with a lot because it wasn't not a lot. I mean, just the level of competition just was not the same as it is now. But now the people are so good that the margin of error is so small. The difference between victory and defeat is so small that it's just so much high-level activity going on in, in MMA fights that you can't, you can't fuck around in anywhere with your nutrition, with your recovery, with your, you know, like all the different things that you're doing um, outside of training like cryotherapy or floating or all these different things that people do. Sauna, that's another thing that a lot of guys do. All those different things are like hugely important because these little tiny edges, but also technique. Like your technique has to be efficient and has to be correct so that in the heat of the moment, 
you you're you never think of doing things wrong because you've never done anything wrong. Every time you're training, you're doing things correctly, and that might not even save you. You still might get head kicked. So you're like still basically you're you're at, when you're at your worst, you're still the best. Yeah, well, there's no that's the problem. The best fluctuates when you're dealing with like world championship level, right? Like say like let's a division like say the UFC's 170 pound division, very competitive division, so competitive that the last title fight resulted in a draw. And uh, one of the first draws, there's only three draws in the history of the UFC in title fights. So this fight lines up in a draw, and then there's a bunch of other guys fucking just straight killers waiting in the wings to have their shot at the title. So on any given day, one of these guys might be able to beat one of those guys. Like one of these guys comes in a little bit sick, has a little bit of a cold from training, or maybe they're breaking up with their girlfriend, their head's a little fucked up, which happens a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's I thought that was super a training common. thing, was like stay away from the ladies. Yeah. Uh, that's bullshit. Uh -huh. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes it's actually better to have sex because then you're not thinking about sex. You know, but everybody that's has their own mindset. That's what you see in the movies all the time, right? It's like, yeah, you got to be off the ladies if you're going to train yeah. for me. Well, so. a, lot of, a lot of fighters do think that, though. Like uh, Hicks and Gracie was one of the greatest jujitsu fighters of all time. He wouldn't have sex for, like, months, months out. No wonder he's just furious. Meanwhile, I should be a fighter. Mike Tyson, <laughs> Mike Tyson would get his dick sucked right before he knocked someone the fuck out. He didn't give a shit. He was like, that's bullshit. I'm here for pussy. Like, he has a great quote. Mike Tyson has a great quote. He said, uh, if a god invented anything better than pussy, he's keeping it to himself. <laughs> so he would have sex like right before he fought and just destroy everybody. So... Interesting. Put that in perspective. It doesn't make any sense. He's not known to be a wordsmith either. That's yeah. He's actually not the most educated guy, obviously, but not a stupid man at any by any stretch of the imagination. I heard that show he did was fantastic. I heard it's amazing. I never got a chance to see it. That uh, I saw the documentary, but I never saw the live show. His live show is supposed to be amazing. Oh, he did a, like a stand-up show, right? Sort of, yeah, like a, just a story of his life. One oh, act okay. kind of yeah, or something, right? Yeah, and it's yeah. supposed to be just insane. Everybody that I know that's seen it said, you got to see it. It's amazing. That's cool. Yeah. But anyway, sex for him, yes, he would have the sex. Some, just I not mean, for everybody. It's just, I mean, it certainly would lower your testosterone a little bit. But, I mean, if you're fit and prepared, it might relax you where you get a good night's sleep. You know, because that's one of the things about these guys is, like, anxiety, staying up late, you know, just trying to keep, get your shit together, making sure you get a good night's sleep so you could, you don't get sick. Don't let the, uh, don't be overwhelmed by the pressure of the moment. It's a lot yeah. going on. Hell yeah. And, you know, you've and once you've introduced the, the possibility of just getting the shit kicked out of you, it, that raises the, the anxiety significantly. Sure. The, um, now... Think about the anxiety of releasing a perfect arrow on a beautiful animal. You know, there's a lot of anxiety involved in that. And it's something that people on the outside, I've heard people say ridiculous things when, when it comes to hunting. But one of the most ridiculous things that people love to say is, you know, there's no skill involved in that. All you're doing is, you know, you're shooting a defenseless animal. Like, do you, you have no idea. You, you don't know what you're talking about. It's insanely difficult. It's so difficult to keep your shit together in that moment. And if you're a person who is compassionate and who understands the consequences of wounding an animal and what's, what's at stake here and, the, you know, the, the responsibility of making a perfect shot and, and a clean kill, it's a very anxiety-filled moment. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll tell you right now, it, you know, I've been around a lot of death. Um, not necessarily by my hands, but, you know, doing the guiding gig and stuff like that. Um, 
I, I did not ever think I was susceptible to that anxiety of being behind the trigger because I'd been around it so, so much. So what I'm trying to say is once you get that skill to be calm behind the trigger or on the string if you're releasing an arrow, it's not necessarily something that's going to stay with you. Right. It's not an automatic deal because right. I, I missed the largest mule deer in my life this year with a rifle at really? 90 yards. No way. Largest mule deer I've ever seen. Uh, no ever way. seen. Bigger than the one that you killed with Steve? Yes. That's insane. That yes. one was massive. That one that Steve killed was huge. How was it bigger? This thing, <laughs> man, I just don't. We hiked for uh, two and a half days. My buddy uh, Kyler Reardon, he's the dude who boiled out your mule deer skull, uh, your Montana one. Mm-hmm. Um, we, I mean, we hiked for two and a half days. He and, he and uh, his wife were having a baby, so we were like, got to make this hunt happen because... It was not going to happen next year. How far in did you guys go? We were um, seven miles, probably. Um, so you're going over and under, over elevation, climbing mountains. Yeah, basically, you know, uh, big river crossing, um, big climb, try to follow a major drainage up, couldn't find anything or found very, very little. Um, just nasty, nasty country. Um, finally find one mule deer fawn. Sun's setting. There's a mule deer fawn on this ridgeline. I'm like, well, let's just camp here because um, we had to leave the next day. But that's the only sign of life that we saw. Whoa. And so we camped, and uh, Kyler's all fraught because he's, my God, this is, I thought this would work out. It was his spot. It wasn't my spot. And... Uh, the next morning we get up and just stare at this hillside. Kyler leaves to go take a shit. And yeah, four hours later, there's a, a buck crosses and I can't get a range on my range finder. It's too far away. And I'm just pissed at the whole situation. Kyler comes over and he's like, Hey, I found some deer. And, uh, we slipped around and in this tiny little, you had to be there. It wasn't something you could see from two miles away. You had to, like, stumble into this pocket. There were seven bucks chasing one doe, seven mule deer bucks chasing one doe. And we were looking at these deer, and we were so far in, you know, it, it typically you're just not going to shoot a buck for meat when you're that far in. Um, and out. When you, when you say a buck for me, you mean uh, a small buck. A smaller buck, yeah. Because you, you've put out so much effort, you would like to get an older, mature animal when you're that far in. Yeah, you're still going to eat the meat, right, but you of course. want something kind of exceptional. You right, exactly. But for people, for the uninitiated, which a lot of people listening to this are, the meat buck, you would think of like a, a young fork buck where it doesn't have big antlers. So and you're talking about, you're looking for a big, mature animal. Looking for a big, mature animal. Which because is a difficult challenge. It's There's a lot involved in an animal like that. And it's also an animal that most certainly has bred. Yes. Spread its genes. And so yes. it's a good animal to take out of the gene pool to allow other animals to also breed. And in fact, this is the only deer only buck in that group that was going the complete opposite direction so everybody else all his six buddies were on that doe following her and he was going the opposite direction smart he's like listen bitch yeah i got no time for these fucking games you know where to find me hooker good luck (laughs) good luck honey yeah he probably fucking drove his ferrari over the top of the hill when you're ready i'll be over my whip i'll be over here in my mansion And, uh, man, I had this thing dead two rights. I mean, a shot I can make 
any day of the week. And I missed that thing at 90 yards with a rifle. Did offhand? you punch? Was it offhand? Oh, no. I had a oh, big, beautiful rest. I had no God. excuses, and I just lost my shit. Did you jerk the trigger? Shit. Man, you don't know? I, I know exactly. I mean, I'd, I mean, it was, I've been in this situation a lot. I'm like, right. okay, deer's undercover. He's going to step into this opening. I had, had a round in the chamber. Finger was off the trigger. I was just waiting for him to step into that opening. Crosshairs were there. As soon as his nose came into the scope, I pulled the trigger. Oh, and went right in front of him? Yep. Oh, mm. you panicked. Oh, I, I lost it. Because he was just, you saw all those antlers. I just, I never even looked at the buck through my binoculars because I knew, I just knew. How, how big he was. How big he was. How big you think he was? If you had a guess, like inches wise. I would say once in two lifetimes. Like, I will never see a deer that Like a 290? It was... Like it, one of those Arizona strip bucks? For me, yes. For me, yes. But I, I would say it was well over over, well over well the 220 mark, was my thought. That, for people who don't know what that means, that's a, that's like me with my arms out. Like, that's how big the antlers are. It's a, If you see that thing, that is... You, there should be a lot of... For me, there's a lot of misery in seeing that thing for... It should be a a major pat on the back because that's just something nobody gets to see. Yeah, it's super rare, right? To, for them to get that big, that's genetics, age. It's a wise animal. There's Cer a lot involved. Certainly in that unit. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it was just. So it's this is an over-the-counter unit. Yeah, and everything. Which means that for people the uninitiated, you just you don't. For a lot of places, like where I just said, the Arizona Strip. The Arizona Strip is like this legendary area that borders between Utah and Arizona, and it has these monster mule deer in it. Like every year, they pull these just insane deer out. They've gone over 300 inches, which is just, it's like the one-tenth of one percent of the world's population of deer. It's just so rare to see an animal this big. And this one area consistently produces these animals, so it's really hard to get a tag there. Really hard. Like, you could put in for 20 years and still not get it. What that means is there might be thousands and thousands of people. Well, they are. There are thousands of people that are putting in for a tag there, and they might pick a very small amount. Very, very small amount. Yes. And, so this was like an animal for there. And this is, some, like like I said, no excuses. We shoot a ton. We have a reloading bench in the basement. We shoot our bows in the basement of the office. We have multiple shooting facilities that we can go to within 15 minutes of the office, spend a ton of time behind the trigger. Do you have a process that you do in your mind? Like when you see an animal and you're about to pull the trigger, do you have like a thing that you do? Yeah. Because yeah. they say that that's a good thing to have like almost like a mantra. For that, sure like, with archery. Like... The more you do it, the better you are. Like the way you take your arrow out of the quiver, the way you put it on the string. Like you want that to be to where if you are just gripped, right, it just happens. Exactly like fighting. I'd say that's probably Same exact thing. Yeah. Same exact thing. Yeah. Dealing with anxiety and having this like pattern that you've carved so deeply into your mind and your body, your neurons, that mm -hmm. your body just knows automatically. Like, like when I was competing, there was moments where I did something where I didn't even know I did it and it was you over already. Out. Right. You well, basically don't even remember what happened. Well, you're just moving on this total reaction and training. Yeah. You know, and for uh, archers, that moment, like you have to kind of like carve that path also because 
like if you're if you're fighting, you get to spar a lot, so you get to hit people a lot. You get used to the idea of moving away and hitting someone. But how often do you get to shoot an animal? Right. I mean, it's really rare. I mean, right. you shoot one like maybe once a six months, you know, once a, once a year if you're a busy person, if you're lucky. Maybe you go a year and you don't even get a shot at one because you don't see, maybe you get this one trip a year. And like uh, what, you know, you go somewhere and like you were saying, you didn't see anything until you saw that fawn. That could have been the whole trip. Could have yeah. been the entire And it happens trip. all the time. You go, you'll be out there for days and days and days. Totally. You don't see a goddamn thing. And then next year comes along. And then next year sucks too. And then the year after that, you finally get a shot, and you're like, Jesus! Your your whole body's just racked with anticipation and nerves. And I've seen people where their legs are shaking, their arms are shaking. Like I've seen videos of guys hunting elk where you see their arms oh, shaking yeah. as they're pulling back. Their body's just jacked with adrenaline. <laughs> Jesus! And they're just trying to keep that pin in the general area of that animal yeah. and pull through the shot. For and, those of you who don't know, this is like stepping into a place that you have never been before. You're not sure what's going on and you whistle and a six to eight hundred pound animal with big chunks of sharp bone coming out of its head and its dick slapping against its belly <laughs> spraying piss all over the place wants to come in and either mount you from behind or beat the piss out of you yeah or stab you with his antlers uh, it's yeah. a forest horse with swords growing out of its yeah. head I mean, it's it's these are they're amazing, and it is you freak amazing. out, man. You it's freak crazy. out. It is, but uh, one every five. If you're an archery hunter, once one bull every five years, or one successful uh, season in five is the national average. That's why Cam Haynes is such a freak, because he has not been, uh, he's he hasn't been unsuccessful on an archery hunt since 2009. And yes. the guy goes many times a year, yeah. many times a year. He but all the ultra marathon running and all the weightlifting, all the crazy shit he does, and constant practice with archery, he just like when the moments come, he's the, he's so dialed in, he's so ready to go. It's really really impressive, you know. I mean, I don't think people understand. So when I see people on like his Instagram page going, "It takes no skill. What you're doing is you're a coward. Why don't you fight that thing hand to hand?" Oh, like, oh my god. You have no idea what you're looking at the 1/10th of 1% of all the hunters. That's what that guy is. He's the he's the 1/10th of 1% of the hunters and he's out there being way more successful than anybody else doing something that's insanely difficult, but to the uninitiated or to the people that just have never experienced it, it looks like he's an animal-hating monster who's out there shooting God's beautiful creations. All right. Sometimes Brian and I will go hunting with military guys. We'll come out and um, back to the just having the process. It's the craziest thing. Guys that are really good at this, you know, and it's like it's almost like a robotic action. When it's go time, it's like sit there, pack down. You know, just it's pretty wild to watch somebody that's that's so practiced at that. You know, the way they load, the way they reload, on target, on glass. Like it's, it's it's amazing. You know, when you see true pros at you know. Well, that's doing a that. totally different world when you have to shoot people and they're trying to yeah. shoot you too. Mm -hmm. I mean, you think of the anticipation, the anxiety that's involved in shooting a beautiful deer like you missed. Now imagine that's some you're in some foreign land and this is uh, some enemy guy that you're engaging with and he's trying to kill you and you know like yeah you gotta be, I mean that's where legit like that's one of the interesting do you know who Joel Turner is mm -mm. I do not Joel, Joel Turner has a uh, whole series on target panic for archery it's really interesting it's an online series 
Um, what is it called? Uh, something. See if you can find the name. Is this of... guy a traditional guy? Yes. yes. I've heard of this. Is guy. he out of uh, like Denver, maybe something? Like um, that. I'm not sure where he's out of. But it's an instinct, fighting instinct, or something like that. No. Is he the Iron Mind? Yeah. Is he Iron the closed mind. loop guy? Yes. Yeah. Closed okay. loop, open loop guy. Gotcha. And Check. he, he's got this whole system that he's put together, and I actually paid for it. And watched it. Very good stuff. Very well thought out. Very interesting stuff. But a lot of it is on the mindset because he was a, he was training police officers. He's training like SWAT team members and and how to keep it together in the middle of a firefight. And he actually was talking in one of the interviews that I saw him in about uh, a conversation that he had with a police officer that was in a firefight with a bad guy and heard this, heard his words and his instructions going through and executed correctly and did the right thing while this guy's shooting in his car window and b- glass is flying Unreal. and mm. bullets are flying at him and he stayed calm and killed this guy who was shooting at him. But that um, the, 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 this process of having a thing that you like a mantra that you relay in your head that relates to a physical action and that you drill it in yourself so it's like it's unavoidable like this is how you do things well that situation we described with the bowl coming in like yeah you shake yeah your heart yeah. goes a million miles an hour like yeah. if you don't have something to fall back on the odds of you making a mistake i feel are way higher than you being successful yeah yeah you gotta there's gotta be a thing in your brain that you can like press play on you know and then once you do that you could like there was an article that i read recently about uh it was about choking in sports and it was essentially there's the article was essentially saying that what you have to do is figure out a process that removes your conscious mind from the equation like figure out a process of training where you know what to do like someone's you have a basketball someone's coming at you you juke left you go right you know how to do this you've done it so many times that this is just a natural reaction and get it to the point where you don't have to think about it so you're not overwhelmed by this moment and the anticipation of what if I fuck this up oh my god so many people are watching what happens here what if I do that and you'll you'll see those moments where people just lock up and they panic you see it in fighting all the time you know the trad bow thing versus the compound traditional bow, bow traditional for, bow like a recurve right yeah. that introduces that's when this shit can get crazy because say with the compound you draw back you hit the wall right the bow only lets you draw back so far right. you look through a hole you light up with another hole i mean don't get me wrong it's no picnic but then you know once you start shooting a traditional bow there's nothing that's super repeatable i mean right. you try to do it but you pull it back as far or if you don't pull it back far enough you goof up you know right. what i mean there's no aiming um and it's a funny experience when all of a sudden the first time you draw back on an animal you're like what the hell is going like there's no reference right your right. brain is just kind of bouncing around and i think where that uh what was the guy's name the, joel turner yeah where he is just you know a he shoots with a is- thumb loop he shoots mongol style you know no. what Mongol style is? No. The, the Mongols used to have a thumb ring. They would have a bone ring I've seen that this. they would wear around their thumb, and that's what would fit on the groove of the string. So they'd hook the string with their thumb and then close their index finger over it, and they would draw back like this. 
And according to Dan Carlin from, if you've never heard this before, if you've heard me rant about this before, I'm sorry, just just ignore me for a moment. <laughs> Hardcore, a there's a there's a amazing um, uh, podcast series called Hardcore History. It's by this guy who's a friend of mine. His name is Dan Carlin. He's this genius historian who's so good at relaying this. He'll he'll say he's not a historian. He definitely is. He's a super humble guy, but he's so good at relaying information in an entertaining and dramatic fashion and he has a series called the wrath of the con and it's a five-part series you have to pay for it now um but it's like a dollar an episode it's so worth it it's worth a hundred times more than that but it's a five-part episode on the mongols and he, he said that their bows were like 160 pound draw they were just these sinewy fucking savages that were incredible archers that were they had developed this ability to release the arrow as the horse was in its gallop so when the horse was in the air when there wasn't a disturbance so they would time the release of the arrow to when the horse was actually in the air Thump! they had it like down and they had a thumb ring and that's how they would draw back so not with your fingers like most people do they would draw back with the thumb loop the index finger over the thumb and for some reason they found that to be a better method I'll and bet you it's like a, it's like a you know, it's like a primitive release. That's the thing with yeah. the trad, right? Your fingers, you can pluck. You can just a hundred different ways to screw up, right? Right, right? Whereas if you had that, right, you let go, it's probably a lot more consistent. All, yeah. You know? Well, that's the whole... Yeah, there it is. You can see that that's the, the bone thumb rings. And it, a lot of people like to uh, shoot that way now. It's really kind of interesting stuff, man. See how it yeah. holds? And then you, you throw your finger over the uh, top of that thumb ring. And, you know, your, your thumb pushes back on it, and in your finger, your index finger, closes over the top of your thumb. I mean, it's not dissimilar to a modern to a release, release, right? In a lot of ways, yeah. Like, um, when I shoot a compound bow, I shoot, uh, I use a, a Carter release, and uh -huh. it's a thumb trigger release. It's a... Uh, Good brand. It back Good. tension. Yeah. It's, I use one called uh -huh. a Wise Choice. It's... um. But I use a tension-based one, too, the Evolution, or it's one that John Dudley put out called the Silverback that I, I really Does prefer. that screw you up going no, back and forth? No, no, it doesn't, because it's the same motion. You know, the, the idea is you don't ever pull the trigger. You, you lock in, you pull in place, you put your thumb over the trigger, then once you're in place, you concentrate on the muscles that are in the center of your back, and you pull those, and the release goes off, and you get a surprise shot. So the, the idea behind that is there's never a moment when you're like, now! And you punch it, and then you move the, the, like the arrow, or you move the bow. So, like, did I get it? Right. You know, there's, all that shit is out of your head because all you're doing in the shot process is pulling and concentrating on those muscles in the center of your back and your scapula, and contracting those. And as you do that, the release just goes off because your thumb is pressing against that trigger, and it just goes. And but you have to resist that that urge that everybody has. Just now, now. Yeah, punching. So that's the difference between like John Dudley's approach versus Joel Turner's approach. Like John, du I mean, Joel Turner has the same approach and even talks about it when it comes to um, compound bows, of using uh, a thumb trigger, of pulling and letting you know letting the shot go off automatically. But Dudley, um, he thinks that you should start off using a tension-based release, which the way that works is you actually hold the safety, you hold the trigger until you lock in place. And then once you're ready to execute, you release the safety, and all it takes is like a couple extra pounds of pulling, and it goes off. Interesting. Yeah. So it's like a Carter Evolution, or he, he has one that he makes called the Silverback. 
that is a two-finger version of the Carter Evolution. So he feels like the least amount of fingers that you have on it, the least amount of tension. I mean, this is the, the point to try to, to people are like, what the fuck are you rambling about? <laughs> what, what I'm trying to rambling about is like this, this thing is insanely complicated. So to the people that look at this and say, oh, there's no skill involved and oh, you're just, you know, killing this defenseless animal. Like, it is the most difficult way to get your food. Yeah. Yes. It's the most difficult way. There's no more difficult way to get your food than shooting an animal with a bow and arrow. It doesn't exist. Unless you want to fucking use a spear. I mean, I guess that's... It is not getting gross. I guess you could jump out of a tree with a knife and... Yeah. But that's stupid. I mean, but... It is. The, you know, the animal comes first, right? Like, for me, if it is proficient and proven to be proficient, when Kent and I were making the switch to go back to traditional archery why'd you guys decide to do that man i i got so tired of the stuff right? yeah it was like tough stuff changing every year new sights new strings and new this new that i got to hate hate setting up a compound bow i hated it why because there's just so much shit going on and I'm yeah. like oh man is that me or is the bow out of tune did my string stretch cam timing did, and oh. twisting your strings and I'm going Man. back for this year. I'm going to get a bow, but uh, like to Cal's point, plus... Wait a minute, you going back to traditional or are you going back to compound? I'm going back to compound. A company is making, um, uh, called G5, really nice bows and a camouflage pattern, and I'm, I'm pretty excited. And plus, I don't know, I, 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 I've had very mixed success. I've struggled a little bit. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, but how could you not? But the um, but the but frankly the the simplicity of it is so appealing. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's it's fantastic, right? Versus setting everything up and plus you know you get to a point where a modern compound bow, if you practice a lot, meaning for years, right? You you'll get to ninety yards to where you are proficient all day. People are going to complain, and uh, I don't know. I, I'm not. It's I, not. I, it's not yeah. really that ethical for most people to shoot at 90 yards, but it is for a guy like John Dudley or you know a guy like Cameron Haynes because they do it all day every this day. This man is a very technically proficient shooter in anything that he shoots, so. and he won't say it. But we used to sit in the ski area parking lot, Greyhawk parking lot, and 106 yards is as far as my adjustable sight would go on my bow so he would stand there he could shoot a lot further but i mean the groups that he would put in at 106 yards were amazing because he's got that mind to do it so but, he can shoot you know i don't know but the thing is is that after a while you get to the point where i don't want to shoot something at 50 yards i want to shoot my next elk at 15 yards you know what mm -hmm. i mean so i think right. that's largely it and i think Without a doubt, in the past three years, I've become way better hunt. We've, you know, both. I mean, Cal's killed a bull both years with his trad. I missed a nice bull two years ago, but it's just hard. It's you know, and if nothing else, you're going to get way better at hunting in the sense that you're going to hunt more because you're not going to kill shit right. at first, right? But you know, being having to go from let's just say 80 is a max yard and i, I don't want to get into the argument about distance but let's just say that was you know your max max on a perfect situation with down, a compound bow. with a compound bow down to uh say 25 or 30 yards it uh, it's interesting it just makes you in your head just so much more you have to try so much harder you know and um, I don't know. I, even I just people wanted that, that experience. have no desire whatsoever to hunt. Even if you're a lifelong vegetarian, you're never going to eat meat. 
just go shoot a bow and arrow at a target. It is so relaxing in some yeah. weird meditative way. It cleanses your mind in some yeah. strange way. Oh, it's Zen stuff, man. Yeah. It is. It's like fly fishing, kind of same thing. It's like you're not necessarily, I don't know, you have to concentrate, but at the same time, it's like taking a nap or something. You go shoot for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, and you're done. You're like, okay, what was I thinking about before? Yeah, right? yeah. Oh, I love to do it when I've got like a business issue I'm dealing with or something I'm trying to like sort out in my mind. I just go out in my yard. I got a big rubber elk out there at 85 yards, and I'll just start shooting that sucker. And you, see, you don't think about nothing but that shot. You just like center that pin, try to stay calm, relax your hand, let the bow go off. You, there's no room for anything else. And, right. and, and, and it's activities. Quiet. Yeah. And you walk quiet. up there, yeah. you pull your arrows out, you walk back, you're concentrating. Mm -hmm. Like the whole process, I don't know. I think it's it's, it's cleansing in some sort of a weird yes, way. And funny. I'm not a traditional bow shooter, but I would imagine that would accentuate it even further because uh, it's even more like instinctive that you have that involved as well. So, like, instead of using a sight, you're sort of like calculating in your mind the drop of the arrow over distance. Yes. It can, but it can be more frustrating too. I, yes. Way more with the compound I've gone out. I mean, with the recurve, I've gone out and shot two arrows and was like, fuck this, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> it's like just. But yeah. you know, the, the Ken and I, I, are all, uh, are, uh, our first accountant gal retired, and so we all went out and had some beers with her. And and I was a little fuzzy the next morning, and I forgot my tags. So uh, I was like, <laughs> I'm just gonna call for for Ken. And we took off into the woods, and called the bull in within 20 minutes. Didn't have a shot at. Oh my gosh, this is a great day. We ended up calling in three more three more bulls that day, but the bull that Kenton got a shot at. Um, he would have shot four times before right. it ultimately came in to recurve distance. Right. But it did come in. It came, I mean, it, it was in four yards at one point. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, it was, this, it was like this close. That's so crazy to have an animal that big, that close to you. It was crazy. And, but to Cal's point, the beauty was, was that it was hanging up out at, you know, 50 yards for five minutes. And that would have been the end of that experience. Right. right. I would have, not had that same experience and then uh, then it comes up and to cal what i mean it licked you basically right it came in and <laughs> he had my ball a, cap in front of my face i was looking through the mesh in the back of my cap really yeah. oh yeah. it's insane it's screaming Whoa. and it comes straight towards me but i it kind of caught me you know to where i didn't have a shot um and then it went and looked and i missed it oh, I, i'll never forget that but um but, but it would have been over say, it was the experience of having of having to get that close is really cool yeah. You know what I mean? If like, like I said, it would have been done, and we'd have been packing it out. It would have been cool, but whatever. And that would have been incredible to shoot it there too. But but just to be that close and visceral, and it's like, holy smokes! I mean, this thing is here. Yeah, it's one of the things that um, I talked about with um, Jason Hairston from Kuyu. We were talking about the difference between like mountaineering and hunting. And it's like all these things and hiking and hunting, it's like all these things are beautiful and they're amazing. But then add, the, add to that this experience of this really intense moment with a wild animal where you have to execute something. You have to execute a shot and you have to everything has to come together and has to come together perfectly. And that is what makes this so addictive. Mm -hmm. And that's something that, man, I try to relay that to people and I try to explain it, but I just feel like my words aren't adequate. I feel like everything everything I always say to describe it, I feel like I just I'm just rambling 
and it's not going to work because you have to you kind of have to see it to understand yeah, I mean, there's very little reference, right? right? And that's what you're talking about. It's like you can say, well, it's like, you know, imagine, you know, skiing a perfect, um, you know, 50 degrees powder line, right? Or whatever, something kind of, you know, heavy with consequence. But it's totally different like than that. Yeah. It's like, it's just raw. I don't know how else to describe it. There's no it. else to describe yeah. it. It's, there's certain words, like, there's no words for a giant mushroom trip. You know, like, I've, had, I've tried to talk to people who have never done anything. Like, what's it like? You see things? You see, like, pretty colors? Is it really worth it? <laughs> Like you can see God. You just got to take enough. Like, like, yeah, you can definitely see colors. But, I mean, I just saying those words to people. And then, you know, you talk to somebody about it. And then, like, a year later, they go, dude, I did it. Whoa. Like, a buddy of mine recently just did DMT. And uh, he had talked about it for a long time. And then he finally did it. And then he just he sent me a text message. He's like, dude, I'm at the elves. I was like, oh, well, there he you go. He texted you mid-trip? No, no, no. He texted oh. me after it was over. Oh. Because, you right. know, he had been thinking about doing it forever. And then... It's one of those things like you, unless you do it, whatever I say, the way the words that I'm using to describe, they're just not going to work. I think that's the case with so many experiences in life. Like try to describe being in love to someone who's never been in a relationship. You know, there's no way you could never do it. You can never explain the love of your children to someone who doesn't have kids. What is it like, like the way I love my dog? Like, <laughs> ah, oh man, figure it out. <laughs> it's yeah. like. You know, and I think certain intense experiences in life, like hunting, or just even, I mean, even forget the hunting. I mean, just being in the woods, like attempting to hunt an animal is an insane, almost psychedelic experience. Like, it's one of the things that I describe to people the first trip that we went to the Missouri Breaks when I, I shot that deer. When I locked eyes with that animal the, for, for the first time, and I was sitting uh, on a pack uh, looking down the scope of this rifle and I was looking at this animal and then I look at this animal through this rifle scope and he's looking at me I was like this is a weird life form that's living in this very barren and desolate place where there's no people for miles and I'm locking eyes with this thing and it was oddly psychedelic it was oddly like paradigm shifting like the moment was so intense and weird I was like wow I didn't expect this like this is this is like, I mean, count, I mean I'm mean, i feeling, like, because this thing is looking at us. I'm feeling that this thing is thinking, like, what are you and what are you doing? Because we've probably never seen a person before. What are you? What are you doing here? And should I be worried about you? Right. Like, he's going, that wasn't here yesterday. Yeah. What is yeah. it? What is that? And, you know, he's like, you know, he, all he's seen is like baseball hat and the, the metal barrel of a rifle. And he's not seeing much. He's just seeing us resting over the top of a ridge looking down on him. And he's like, what the fuck is that? It's it's a it's really weird in, intense experience. It is, and, and the because you you do look at things in a much different way, and and you know, kind of the point of talking about all this public land stuff is that I I do feel like people who hunt and fish carry a big load of this burden right through the taxes that we pay, that are taxes that if you don't hunt or fish, you don't pay them. So. And we've highlighted that on the show, the the actual amount of it. We've showed, like, from the Rocky Mountain Elf Foundation, their Instagram page. They have a really good Instagram page. It has a bunch of different examples of different states of the sheer volume of money that comes in because, directly because of hunting and fishing. And it's staggering. It's in the billions. And it is by far, above and beyond anything else, by far, the, the largest amount of conservation money that comes into this country. The largest, by far. It is. So Huggy, Nothing even Hunter close. Fisherman. I yeah. Mean, 
Nothing even close. It's amazing mm -hmm. when you think about it that way. In, in that sense, this system that we have here with public land and with using these tax dollars to pay for, for all the wildlife biologists, to pay for the fish and game, to pay for the population management, it's amazing. It's an amazing it system. But if you're a hiker that, you know, you're a peak bagger, right? You're, you're finding names on the map and you're like, I'm going to hike to this lake or I'm going to hike to this peak. You're, peak, that's what you call him, a peak bagger? Peak yeah, bagger. Like bag and, you know. You bag a peak? How many yeah. peaks have you been to? Yeah, yeah. exactly. That's interesting, a peak bagger. Uh, big <laughs> sounds like big a in that boulder pervert. community, right? Boulder? Yeah. Yeah, 14ers and yeah. Yeah, yeah, bagging a lot of peaks. Yeah, and people fall off those peaks too, man. Yes, they yeah. really get stuck up there. Woo, that sucks. But, you know, you are taking a trail, an established trail, and you're covering miles and you're getting to your goal, and... Maybe you're snapping a picture or spending a night, and then you're coming back on that trail, or maybe it's a different trail. Whereas, you know, a hunter is, you know, as soon as you step away from the truck and are out the trailhead, you are plotting your own course. You're making your own moves, and there, it is a totally different experience. Everything means something different to you. You're looking at it in a different way. You're trying to interpret different signs and you're you know basically you have no the, path yeah, yeah right? and your 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 choices are pretty much limitless they're absolutely yes. limitless like when yeah. you leave as soon as you get off the trail, the trail you're just like you know hopefully you hear, you hear something or you see something or you smell something and that begins your day but you don't know you might you might not leave a hundred yards that day and you might cover you know it might be a heavy you know eight mile you know five thousand foot day you don't know and that's I don't know, that's the craziest thing. You just have to be prepared for whatever. And so, you know, I get people who are like, well, there aren't any wolves here anymore. Because in Idaho, wolves were, you could see them a lot, especially in, in the Ketchum area, the Loman area. They're wolves that, you know, they, they're smart critters. They know that, they knew that nobody was going to shoot at them. And so they were a fairly common occurrence to see. And then once the season opened, once they let people go out and they issued tags, um, they picked it up really quick, and you didn't just see them hanging out next to the road. And people said, well, the hunters killed all the wolves. But oddly enough, the hunters are reporting wolf sightings. Yeah, like, no, I saw this. Yeah, mm -hmm. they're not killing all the wolves. They're killing a pretty small number, right? Yeah. yeah. Super we're doing a poor them. job as hunters. We're not... We're not we're not getting getting the numbers that we're supposed to get. So what do they do? Do they are they hiring professional wolf killers to to go after uh, wolves like they're doing in California to go after cougars? Since they yeah. killed, since they stopped the hunting season on mountain lions, they haven't stopped killing mountain lions. That's something people don't understand. Like there was a depredation order on a mountain lion up in the Malibu uh, mountains that had killed eleven alpaca and a goat in one sh one sitting. Whoa! Yeah, this big fucker just and they know the the lion too because it's tagged. It mm -hmm. has a collar on it, and uh, this fucker just found an alpaca farm and just went to town. Just had a glory killing spree. Wait, so in California they can't they no no mountain lion no hunting whatsoever, but wow. they're everywhere. Especially in rural areas, there's a place called Tahone Ranch where that bull came from yeah, that yeah. you see out front. There's one uh, lake that they have, like a pond they have out there, and they have a trail cam up. They've got 17 different mountain lions on trail cam. Oh my god! You hear about them eating people fairly fairly often out here, huh? Well, it can. It's you know, it's a lot of it's joggers or uh, bikers, like people on trail bikes, because they think they're trying to get away. Yeah, mm -hmm. you know that thing's. It's almost like a cat with a ball of yarn. They just can't help themselves. Yeah. Right. Fight or flight response. Yeah, someone's running. They're like, "You bitch, where you going?" <laughs> but you know the 
the the thing is, it's like hunters are are doing something different than your typical recreator out there. Yeah, you know, we're not sticking to a game plan. So I feel like, and you're there different hours. Yeah, different and you're making hours. predator no- prey noises, right? Yeah, yeah, you're just doing things differently. So I, th- I think feel like I, I get a little torque sometimes where people think, oh well, of course hunters are going to say there's wolves out there. Yeah, it's it's this is good information for biologists because we're out there actually. Our point in the woods is being out there looking for animals. Now, one of the reasons why I wanted to have you guys on is to really sort of discuss this public land issue and also to allow people to understand what's at stake and to uh, give them uh, options to to look into and uh, to different resources that they can check in on, like like, uh, backcountry hunters and anglers. uh, um, BHA. Yeah. Backcountry hunters and anglers. I can't say it. My my mouth starts shutting down after two hours these days. But what they're doing is uh, amazing, like highlighting like what this is and how important this is. And what are the other things that people can do if they want to look into this stuff? Yeah, so BHA is Big Loud Voice, um, and I think they're one of the best groups out there right now to really just raise awareness. on public lands and access issues. Teddy Roosevelt Conservation Partnership does a phenomenal job. There it is, Backcountry um, Hunters and National Anglers. Wildlife Federation. And by the way, you can buy that t-shirt job. there too, folks, if you want to buy that public land owner t-shirt, they have it yes. there. Now, um, so what the, the main issue is, and, and Kent and I, we talked about, you know, you have an incredible platform here, Joe, and, and we don't want to waste it. So the this is a nonpartisan issue. If you don't like hunters and a- hunters or anglers, that is still your land. If you never leave downtown LA, all this public land contributes to your quality of life through clean air, clean water. Just knowing that it's there should be a, something that is warm and cozy for you because it is your birthright as an American. In in this country where 95% of the people eat meat, it's something, it might even be higher than that. It's depending upon it. And there's so many, so many discussions these days about where your food comes from. There's no better way to find out where your food comes from than to actually go out and get it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. But man, if, if you're buying beef or lamb off, off the grocery store shelf... Those grazing permits that we talked about, that mm-hmm. happen, a lot of yeah. that happens on federally managed lands, whether it's BLM or, uh, or Forest Service ground. And the, the thing is, this is nonpartisan, again. And one of the things that ticked me off about old Jason Chavitz on uh, HR 621 is said, hey, you know, this uh, started under Obama. No, you so, said Clinton. Or Clinton, right. Yeah, I yeah. said Clinton took, designated these lands as useless. Yeah. Who cares? Yeah. I don't care. Yeah. If it yeah. was Clinton, Obama, Trump, that doesn't matter. Yeah, who cares? You're taking the Nixon. land. Who cares? Yeah. I mean, to, to Cal's point, too, back, it's a nonpartisan issue. And I think a lot of times uh, people would like you to believe, oh, if you're a Republican, you're against this. Or if you're, you know, pro-Second Amendment, you can't vote for that and this. And the fact is, is that you can. If you have a Republican leader um, in your area, they can change their mind. You need to be involved, right? And if, and if that's the way you feel, that's great. But you have to realize that you can have your cake and eat it too. It doesn't have to be one or the other. Like, you know what I mean? You, you can be uh, conservative and still be pro-public lands, you know? And, and you need to work 
and call and do what you need to change them if they're not, because if once it's gone, it's gone. And use social media, because social media is an amazing tool, and that's what killed HR 621. It was directly killed by social media, and it was killed quick. It was killed in a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. You know, the pressure that they faced from guys like me posting it to 1.8 million people on Instagram, 1.5 million people on Facebook, 3 million or whatever the fuck it is on Twitter, like all those people add up. And then those people find out about it. They jump in and they realize that this is a this is a uh, it's a really important issue. It's a giant issue. And Ronello always points out that he's, uh, and by the way, Ronello wrote a great article about all this and about how killing HR 621 is just one battle in the overall war. And we're not, there's no, not out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination. And that article is available right now. If you go to um, his uh, Twitter, it's on, I think it's on uh, meateater.com. Is that where it is? Yeah. yeah. But no, that's not, that's one, but there's one that I tweeted today. This is the one from January 20th. There's one that I tweeted today that he just recently wrote. And um, he calls himself a political eunuch because he's like, look, he goes, the Republicans want to sell off the land and the Democrats want to take away your guns. He's like, I don't know where the fuck to go, you know, in, in that sense. Well, I'm, my, my point simply is that you can change. You know what I mean? It's like if you you need it's not a part it shouldn't be a partisan issue right. your it representatives kind of are there to represent your exactly and this if, is the article it's roosevelt robber barons and the continued fight for our public lands and he just published it today and is that on meateater.com yep. yes the meateater.com yes. somebody owns meateater.com yeah isn't that weird give it up bitch whoever you are <laughs> better give it up uh, what is meateater.com? Go to meateater.com. What is that? I think it's... It, you, it, is it available? Is one of those things? It has been just like a picture of a steak for years. Yeah, there you go. Garlic yeah. top sirloin. Yum. It's delicious. Best cow in school. So is this like is someone just holding it? I think the person may have died or something. No, they're dead. Uh, but <laughs> so 622 <laughs> is going to... Yeah, they have a fork <laughs> with a piece of meat. Look, here is my food. Chicken Six, drumstick. Uh, mm, look at my food. HR 622 is going to gut... Uh, the folks that are supposed to be out there protecting our resources, making sure people play nice on on public lands. Yeah. Um, you know the uh, planning 2.0, just a terrible name, not sexy at all. But that is the new management plan for uh, uh, bureau land management. That just got shut down. It's going up to the Senate right now. So the thing is, if you want to know what you can do, you have got Sign these petitions that are going around. TRCP's got a great one, the Sportsman's Pledge. Um, you know, join a rod and gun club, BHA, National Wildlife Federation. These lands are here for everybody. It's not just hunters and fishermen. Um, and, man, all you got to do is write emails and call your duly represent your officials that are there to represent you. And, by the mm-hmm. way, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers has a form that you could fill out on their site they'll send it for you you enter in your email they, they have like a, a, a letter that's already written up yes so it's super easy to do and they'll they'll direct you to where it needs to be sent and you know they're doing a great job of setting that up and letting people know i mean we gotta be gotta be wise about this this is we have an amazing place it's an it's an amazing thing the, the, the fact that you guys live like you were saying that uh what is it church frank church what is it frank church frank church wilderness I mean, can you imagine if you went up there and it was a fucking mall? Oh. You know, mm. somebody chopped all the trees down and well, put up a go-kart 
I mean, <laughs> so if you look at the state land example, right, these state lands are there to make money for the states. And like we said, state gets in trouble, they sell those lands. Yeah. Fire, anything, right? They just It just sucks all the money out of the state. And then the state's literally mandated not to have a negative balance. So that once that happens, it's like, how are we going to make our money? We're how gonna... is Roosevelt so wise? Oh, he had just panic fear of god put into him because he had this realization that he's like oh my god the entire reason i am who i am today is because i had this opportunity to go out and chase animals and and if i saw a horizon line i could go over the top of it because nobody owned it right Right. he's like that made me who i am i got to try to make sure that this is here for the next person well a lot of people don't understand that in many countries that's not really possible and that's actually the story of Robin Hood. The story of Robin Hood wasn't really about stealing from the rich and stealing their money and giving it to the poor. It was about hunting lands. That was the original. Yeah. It was about the king did not let anyone hunt in the kingdom's hunting lands. And Robin Hood was like, fuck you. And he went out there and he was shooting deer and getting people food because people were starving. Yeah. And that that is something that we can do here in America that you can't, it's like, it's one of the reasons why you get so much hate mail from Europe. You get a lot of hate mail from places where they don't have recreational hunting because to them, they don't, they don't even understand it. And they're eating steak. They're eating steak. Like my wife got in an argument with one of her friend's husbands where, um, you know, she was saying that uh, I was on a hunting trip and this guy was eating a steak, carving a steak. <laughs> Literally, they're at dinner and he's like, well, that's deplorable. That's deplorable. He hunts animals? Like, you don't have to do that. Like, she, and she's like, you're eating a steak. She's like, well, these animals are farmed animals. And I go, she goes, well, don't you think that that animal lived a horrific existence and then finally was killed? You think that's better than someone just out of nowhere, you're hiding behind a bush making cow calls and you blast an arrow through the heart of some wild beast and then take that thing down off the mountain. You have the experience, you have the food, you also have this wild encounter with this this magnificent beast that you have this connection to that every time you eat, like every time I eat a, a steak off of that elk, I think about the experience of hunting that thing. I think about seeing it. I think about cutting it up and carrying it out of there. The, the, the whole thing about it is all, it's all connected. Loading it into the truck, hoisting it up. Like the whole thing is like in my mind every time I cut into the meat. And people at the end of the day are genetically hardwired to do that. Yeah, it's weird. You know? It's weird when you tap into that file. Like, yeah. oh, you didn't know about this file. It's right. working for it, man. We're, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. the other experience on public lands. There is, it's just, we talk about this at length all the time. And Kenton's got this like knicker analogy. And we're walking around SHOT Show. And there's this European hunting company down the road. And he stops me and he's like, hey, Cal. He's like, we lose all this land. This is what we're going to be making. <laughs> Knickers? Yeah. Well, you know, it's like, this, it's like this like fake hunting. St- I'm not going to say there's fake hunting, but it's like a canned experience, right? It's yeah. shooting clothes, yeah. not hunting clothes. Sh- let's right. go here. And, Private you know, lands where they, they release, release pheasants out of the back of a truck. And that does happen, folks. There's a thing called like pheasant shoots, European pheasant shoots. And they literally release these birds and the birds fly away and guys stand there with guns waiting for them to release from their cage and shoot them. That's how Dick Cheney shot his friend. <laughs> Remember that? <laughs> yeah. People yeah, don't quail. remember that story. He shot his friend in the fucking face. <laughs> and uh, that was a canned hunt. 
where they just open, they literally open a can, the birds fly out, and they wait, and boom, and shoot them. We got them. (laughs) I mean, the hunting thing, it's honestly like being outside of your your comfort zone. That is it. Yeah. That mean, and, and I mean, you know, and, and if if that's not going to happen, I don't know. I'm not interested. I don't. No, man. Right. The public hunting experience is, man. We're all, you know, you. That's why you follow the rules, right? Yeah. Because everybody gets the same experience then. Right. And on our side, we are constantly like analyzing our clothing and analyzing our days, and we're getting to be totally truthful, uh, man. Life at first light is pretty freaking good, man. We get to spend a lot of days in the woods, way more than your average Joe gets to. And that's how we make stuff good. Right. And well, well the way you guys do it is you, you have new pieces and then you give them to like your representatives, like people that you guys have. Like, what, what do you guys call them? Like ambassadors or something like that? Yeah. What do you call them? You know, team guys. Team guys. Yeah, so you have a bunch of like guys who I follow on Instagram, yeah. hardcore hunters who spend a giant chunk of their life out in the woods. Yes. Some are public. Some are not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the idea is to send, to send them to people that use them in tons of different environments. Like, you know, we hunt in the Rockies. So, you know, we've got plenty of experience there but it's cool we'll, we'll send stay stuff to you know guys hunting in bc or guys hunting in ak where it's raining all the time but that's the that's the goal you know or where it's hot but being able to send stuff out and have it used in these tons of different environments allows us just to build better stuff you know yeah and it's a real trial and error thing where you're taking these super experienced guys and when you said uh some guys are public some guys are not what you mean is some guys have public profiles yes. and some guys they just right. stay under the radar and just yeah they're old you have cultures. a lot of guys like that right yeah 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 and i mean that's it everything gets thoroughly tested and, and that's the fun part but the amazing thing about us and one of the things that i love is we get interns and people from all across the country that have you know, sometimes very little experience and sometimes their input is the most valuable because you get a bunch of people who are like, I know it all. Right. Oh no, don't worry about that. Nobody does that. And then you get this, you know, girl from Ohio and she's like, well, what about this? And this happened to me. And you're like, really? Yeah. You know, because it's a fresh, brand new perspective. Mm -hmm. Somebody who just started hunting. And I think that that's been incredibly valuable on our line too. So living there too is it's living in the mountains. You know, you get to take stuff from all different sports, whether you're, you know, riding your bike or whether you're backcountry skiing. Like a lot of that stuff crosses over, you know. And I think that allows us to round things out nicely. Like, you know, hiking. Hunting is quite different than hiking, right? Like hiking, people want to build the lightest thing they can build that can do whatever. Hunting's totally different. You're off the trail. You're going through bushes. Like you kind of have to throw that lightest thing out the window, you know? You you more have to approach it of like, how heavy can I actually build this and have it still work well? Because it's going to get thrashed, you know what I mean? So you've got to approach it from kind of a, a different shift. And how, you know, when you build stuff, it needs to be versatile, right? Like you can't have, you know... I don't know, it, the, the equivalent would be like having a guy that was a construction worker and he's got an eight-penny nail and he's got a 16-penny nail. Does he have an eight-penny hammer and a 16-penny hammer? It's like, no, you need to be able to do everything with, you know, a, a certain amount of stuff because you're going out in the woods and, you know, you might be walking slow, you might be stopping, you might be going uphill, you might be going downhill, you know. And 
it just allows carrying fewer things that do more jobs. And right. then you might have to go through thick brush, and you might have to have clothes that are durable. Or if you're in Texas, you might have stuff that has thorns and shit, Full and it's going to be ripping your clothes. And yes, don't go to Texas. Don't go to Texas. Every, at everything all? stabs you, and there's ticks, and it's hot. <laughs> Texas is that Texas is a great example of what could possibly happen if we lost public lands, because Texas is weird. I love Texas. Don't get me wrong. I love the state. I love I the people. Too. It's one of my favorite places on earth. But Texas hunting is very strange. There's a lot of it that's high fence, and a lot of it is like over feeders. They have like these feed machines, and these animals come to the feed machines, and they're overrun with wild pigs, and then they have these fucking weird African animals that you can hunt anytime you want. I mean, there's more. There's a bit from my last special, but it's true. There's more tigers in captivity in Texas than there are in all of the wild of the world. Really? Yeah, really. Oh, and tell dudes, me that's not true. It's really? totally Strange. true. There's more tigers in dudes' fucking backyards. Private collections, not zoos, not wildlife sanctuaries. More tigers in private collections in Is Texas. Is that legal? 100% legal. There's no laws huh. in Texas. You just can't have weed. No weed, queer. <laughs> That's it. No gay marriage, no I, weed. I, I want to hunt in Texas. Keep yeah. it clean. But, you I've know, never hunted there, but I would like to. I've sure. hunted there. It's awesome. I love Texas. But you, like, they have, like, scimitar oryx and fucking elands and all these yep. weird African animals that are running there. around. Look at that. Yeah. There are more captive tigers in Texas than in the wild. Whoa. That's real. Whoa. That's real as fuck. But yeah, man, you don't need the type of innovation. 20,000 privately owned big cats, including tigers, lions, and cougars, currently living in captivity in the U.S. But the exact number is unknown due to insufficient record keeping. I, 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 None I, of your fucking business, are queer. Are you sure that doesn't count like those little kind of half-wild no, 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 cats, no, no, those little no, no, whatever? No, man. I've been to Texas, and I've, I've, I have a friend in Texas that has a buddy of his that has a fucking tiger thing in his yard. He's got this giant fenced-out area. He's got a giant ranch, and in his ranch, he's got a bunch of fucking tigers. And he'll what does just he feed them? Like a cow. They'll like a live cow? No. They'll well, they could if you want to. Maybe they won't admit it to me. But they take a cow, like Barbaric. a calf, shoot it in the head, toss it over the fence, and these things tear it apart. Unreal. And they watch oh. it. Yeehaw! They fucking drink a couple of Budweiser's <laughs> and fuck their cousin. And Yeehaw! Look at that. The chief of Dallas and his wife are the proud owners of three 600-pound tigers they have raised since they were born. Jesus Christ. Police chief in Dallas. Former police chief. Jesus Christ. Like many Texans, Bill Rathburn is no longer satisfied with an ordinary pet. Well, I had a German Shepherd, but that queer. <laughs> All he want to do is hump my leg. <laughs> Tired of this. Need a goddamn American animal. These cats tend to mind me even though I use no discipline, he says. No discipline at all. Shut your fucking mouth before you get killed. He has 22 tigers, this guy said. He has even trained these tigers to remain tame. Oh, my God. You Unfortunately, you can buy a tiger for less than $1,000. That Is there like rescue tigers or anything? No, no. See, t Texas has completely different laws when it comes to wildlife. The wildlife in Texas is not, it's, it's private property. It's a whole different situation. I mean, they have tags when it comes to like white-tailed deer and indigenous species. But when it comes, and who knows if even the white-tails are indigenous there. I mean, they're, so, they're bringing them in from farms, so they have bigger racks. You know, they have a lot of weird shit they do. So I wonder, they... it must be if you have a high fence, mm -hmm. then it's, once you, that thing's like fully fenced, 
everything within becomes private. Yeah. It must be. I think that's yeah. exactly what it is. But there's a lot of, like, elands and uh, oryx and all these African animals and uh, axis deer that have gone rogue. They've gotten through fences, and now they're just wild and free-range. Aldad. What do they call uh, them in, in New Zealand? Convicts? Escapees? Escapees. Yeah. yeah. I would... That would be crazy if a cat got loose. It could go nuts out there, right? Oh, sudden, yeah, man. I'm sure it's there. happened. I'm sure if you could drive down the road somewhere in some Jasper, Texas or something. <laughs> you see that tiger? I just saw a fucking tiger. <laughs> the scariest thing in the world, right? Tigers in Texas. We don't even know how many there are. <laughs> I don't. I, I'm blown away right now. I had never heard of this. I have a whole bit about it, man. You should watch it. It's the uh, strangest thing you special. saw come out of the woods this yeah. season. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a very Texas is a very odd place. But what I wanted to highlight is like, man, you don't want that to be the only way you can get a hunting experience because Texas is it's, it's fucking weird. It's I mean, weird. we want we want to have jobs, man. I mean, yeah. the reason for innovation is that competition, that being outside, that right? Pushing yourself, you know, climbing new peaks. Why is the hunting clothing industry like a bunch of fucking high school girls? Because there's there's a, there's a lot of weirdness, like clicks. Like you, if you wear Sitka, you're not supposed to wear Kuyu. If you wear Kuyu, you're not supposed to wear First Light. Man, I thought you were an Under Armour guy <laughs> sitting over there with that First Light shirt on. Like, I'm, what are you, a bunch of fucking girls? Little I, high school girls? Not, not that there's anything wrong with being a girl or yeah. being in high school. Okay? Right. I used to be in high school and never been a girl, but I have no problem with I'm that. glad you picked that yeah. uh, to clear up. But you know what I'm saying? It's like f- fucking, it's like a clicky little weird thing where they're on teams. Like, hey, there's... there's there's no goddamn teams. You know, like I had a yeah. conversation with one of the, you know, Sitka, Harrison, Jason Harrison, who found the Kuyu, started out with Sitka, and then he, they, you know, they pushed him out, and they bought it out, and now the, the Sitka guys and the Kuyu guys don't get along. Like, what? You, you guys are out of your fucking minds? Uh, this shit, yeah. this shit to worry like about. The pro staff thing. Maybe that's where that grew it's team, from. It's team mentality, man. It's the same thing as people from Texas that don't like people from Wyoming. You know, it's yeah. like, a, you know, we played y'all in the fucking Super Bowl and kicked your ass. <laughs> you know, it's, it's I the think same it'd be shit. really hard to believe. I don't, you know, we're very friendly with Yeah, you anybody. guys are. You guys um, are. But I think it'd be real hard to, for me to believe that anybody's out there being like, Listen, if you put this on, you fucking hate those people. Oh, definitely there's people <laughs> you know, like that out I, I there. I think people kind of just pick it up and run with it. Yeah. yeah, yeah well, so. some I'm sure some people are ultra competitive and it comes from that. Like, I mean, that's just the way it is in business, right? Instead of concentrating on what you're doing, a lot of people concentrate on the other people that are doing what you're doing. Yeah. Say, These fuckers are trying to get us and we need to fucking... Yeah, man. But the competition is good. That's the good part yeah. of it, right? Yeah, the That's competition the is amazing because you guys are constantly elevating your game. Like I was uh, yeah, raising the bar, to, right? saying Ryan, I wore your stuff when I went to um, Nevada, and I was like, man, those fucking um, what? What is uh, the? Oh, you the, like the corrugate? Yeah, pants. the corrugate yeah. guide pants. Those fucking, yes. they're great, man. Yeah. They're so like loose. Like when you're walking in them, there's no binding at all. They're tough and durable. And I'm like, you guys nailed it. You know, you nailed it on a lot of stuff. Thank you. It's a cool system in that, you know, generally speaking, you go to a few different shows like the outdoor retailer and whatever, and you get to see all the best stuff, right? Like whether it be from Patagonia or everything. Um, And, you know, you get to build the best thing you can build. And there's like, you know, a couple few companies that literally like us that 
cost is kind of no object. I mean, it's way down the list. And I, I wish we're making things as cheap as we can, and that's still expensive. But it's a fun thing to be able to make the best you can make, right? right? And some people might, you know, say, oh, our stuff's better because we, I don't know, whatever. You know, it, it's, it is what it is. But I mean, everything you, is so good now. Yeah, it's, it's all so quite good now. Good. Selfishly, yes. we can make it for ourselves. Yeah. Well, you know, it's that's so much better sure. than when I started hunting in 2012, which is incredible. In yeah. the four and a half years that I've been hunting, stuff has gotten a lot better. Absolutely. It's really interesting. That's awesome. Yeah, it's, yeah, there's an accelerated curve out there of competition and innovation. And it's, Certainly. And for people that don't even hunt, like you can get your stuff in solid colors, and it is amazing outdoor wear. It's as good as you're going to get. Like I have this, this jacket that I was wearing the other day when it was cold out, and my wife was like, what, a skiing jacket? I'm like, it's a first light jacket, bitch. Because <laughs> it was just black, you know? Right. I'm like, this is the warmest fucking jacket. It's so light and so thin, but, right. you know, it's, what is it, your puffy? Is that what you guys yeah. call it? Yeah, the uncompagre. Yeah, I'm like, this is a, a great jacket. I mean, it's yeah. just, it's the perfect jacket for, like, when it's kind of cold out. It's, And I wore that in Montana when I was doing uh, Anthony Bourdain show, too. I'm like it was fucking nice. freezing out, right? And it's, I'm like this jacket's amazing. You it's gotta just, hang it doesn't out. Doesn't weigh nothing. Buddy, good time and Dan Bailey, the pheasants who's, forever dude. Who's good time and Dan Bailey? Yeah. I don't Big, like the way you say that. Lanky dude, <laughs> <Getting> uh, nervous. <laughs> with uh, the two, he had the two Griffons, the two pointing dogs. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Real okay. good dude. Oh, that's awesome, man. Yeah, the, I'm, bird hunting is fun, but it's it's like way down on the list for me. Well, dude, you're scared. You so. We were talking about elk hunting in Idaho. Yeah. You, are we gotta, doing that? When are we doing that? Clear some time out. Okay. Well, it's hard. Yeah. Give me some days. It's hard. I got kids. I got a wife. Everybody's bitching at me. I've heard of those things. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I've heard Trust of those me. things. I Kenton know. fights those battles yeah, all the you've, time. You've managed to stay clean. Kenton's got restrictions, right? Maybe. Donald like, Trump has made your house a swear-free zone. Is yeah, that what you're saying? Yeah. Well, what happened? Know, <laughs> I don't know. My wife and I might not have the same political views, so we've, we've gotten pretty... Uh, um, was it the grabbing by the pussy talk PC. that oh, pushed that her over the top? It did me no favors. <laughs> that, as far as having a house that was pretty free and loose. Do you have boys or girls? Two boys and a girl. Oh, okay. You're lucky. Yeah. There's like a balance there. Yeah. You got oh, two you girls and two boys in your girl. house and then you. Oh, boy. For me, dude, it's all chicks. My fucking whole house overrun <laughs> by chicks. And my mom, my wife's mom lives nearby. She's over the, over the fucking house, too. It's all women. All, all right. women. You get a lot of time uh, shooting your bow. All women. Yeah, yeah. daddy's going to go outside and pretend he's still a man. <laughs> <laughs> and fucking hide. Uh, hide from all that. you sirens trying to bring me to the rocks. <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny, though. You know, uh, so what, what laws? get established in your household oh i don't know you know we just uh we just have to be concerned with what what, what that we say doesn't isn't isn't negative how I did guess. donald trump bring this about i don't know i think like you said i think there was enough like you know i have two boys right so they're not afraid to call each other a pussy if something's go. you know what i mean they're, right they they're heard both, it on the news yeah oh no <laughs> but they're you know they're into their extreme sport, you know, they're skiers and mountain bikers, and, you know, inevitably, it's like, you know, there's a jump built or something, and first thing that gets called is, you know, the P word in right. our house, and, my, and that was the first thing. My wife's like, no, 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 no. You're a dick. You're a dick. Do you like that? And I was like, whoa, she's serious. Like, she did not... That was not going to be a derogatory term, I and that's fine. Whatever, it shouldn't be. But you know, it was funny because you know they'll heckle each other, and you know they're boys. They 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 you know want to get after you know some nasty, gnarly ass, 
you know, jump or whatever on their bikes, and somebody's got a guinea pig it, and sure enough, it's probably the one that got called a pussy first, right? Right. So we don't do that Well, for, for me, when Donald Trump, that whole story came out, it was great, because then all of a sudden, everybody, so many people are saying pussy. And it seems <laughs> like this country is, like, backing... It, it, we had gotten to some weird politically correct phase just in the last couple of years where people are so mad... At so many different different groups are so mad at the way our culture is that there was all these words that you weren't allowed to say anymore. And there was all these new things like you're not allowed to wear sombreros because it's cultural appropriation. They were getting mad at people for cooking other cultures' dishes. Like people got so politically yeah. correct that like the, the good thing about Donald Trump being in office is that, that I said that political correctness just took a missile to the dick. Because like <laughs> that guy as the fucking commander in chief, man, that political correctness shit it's like it doesn't seem very effective it didn't work here like you can't you can't and people are fighting it of course and rallying and protesting and all that jazz but it the good thing about it, it's like you realize like oh that's just a word like pussy's just a word like and that guy was saying pussy and now he's the president like it's not really like it's like taboo word that summons demons you know it's it's just a word and it's intent that's important it's not demonizing words and making these words impossible to say because we've made them like there's certain words now that you just can't say in our culture or people get upset at you that we're real common like retard you call someone a retard you're not call saying someone has a disease you know, you're, you're saying someone's a fucking knucklehead. Oh, that guy's retarded. You, you know the intent of that word. But people are saying, no, don't say that anymore. That's offensive. Well, the more you create offensive words and the more you create words that are not they're, you're not allowed to say them, the more you're going to give those words power. Uh, and people are going to they can't wait to say them. They can't, I mean, then those words become like nuclear power. That's what I was say, the nuclear option. Then you've yeah. got something, right? Yeah. Oh, you've got the, the, the C word, you know? Yeah. That's, you're always holding on to that one. If a chick gets crazy, <laughs> you know, like, listen, <laughs> cunt. Like, what? <laughs> ah! yeah, it's just, that's it. it's impossible to come back from. There's not an equivalent word for men. <laughs> like, you, 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 by telling us we can't say that word, you can call us dicks all day long. You fucking dick. Yeah, guilty as charged. Yeah, See, you I got it on TV now, yeah. practically, yeah, right? You yeah. can. Yeah. It's, as long as it's not like, uh, you know, I mean, I think like NBC, CBS, they still don't use it. But like any cable show, they use that now. All I know is Kenton's wife tends to look at me like that is the source of looseness right there. That's single man with a like, mustache. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if this man got cut loose to spend too much time with him, it could all go uh, downhill. Just yeah. go feral. Yeah. What's why? Like, no one tells Ryan where to go. Ryan can just go into the woods anytime he wants. I don't think that's right. Yeah. What about, he doesn't have a leash on. How many times does he call and check in? Ryan's uh, just out there with no leash. Get, does he have a collar? I get a long leash. I get a long leash. Especially during hunting season. But mark my words. still a leash. You have a leash. Yeah, Ryan doesn't that. have a leash. He's just Nothing. out there. He He's doesn't have to call anybody. He just goes where he wants. Anarchy yeah. is what it is, Joe. Yeah. What if he just decides to take that mustache and go for a hike? <laughs> Nobody can tell him. <laughs> that, that, that pisses uh -huh. women off because then, then the man goes, yeah, hey, uh, Ryan's just out there with no, no leash. Yeah. He's doing whatever he wants. So oh, I wish I was like that. <laughs> like, I love being married. I love having kids. I love the whole deal. I love having a family. But I got a buddy, my friend Ari. You know what Ari did? He just went off the grid, shut his fucking phone off. He won't answer his emails, and he just disappeared. He went Free to the South Pacific. Easy. Yeah, for how said, long? Just want to do it for a few months. He's just, he's a stand-up comic, hilarious guy, successful show on Comedy Central, doing great, kicking ass. He just decided, you know what? I need some experiences in my life to write about, to talk about, so I'm just going to fucking stop talking to people and disappear for a few months. Oh, I, love I haven't it. talked to him in two months. 
I haven't talked to him. I don't know where the fuck he is. You call his voicemail, it just says the subscriber you have reached has shut off incoming call. Look, I'll play it for you That's guys. That's amazing. So yeah, it's dude, this thing is just I don't know. the most devious creation on Agreed. the planet. It's a tether. Agreed. It's a it tether. is. It is. It is. The subscriber's request this phone does not accept incoming calls. Message NV1. God Ari Shafir is rocking message NV1. <laughs> He doesn't yeah. give a fuck. He went straight envy one. Yeah, so if my wife heard that, well, he's out there with no leash. You think that's good? <laughs> he's got no one to call into. He can't even check in. But he can check in, right? He can do whatever he wants. But he, he, he wants, can call yeah. and say, hey, everything cool? Yeah, all right, late. Boom. He can call me up, hey, faggot, I'm still alive, and then hang up the phone. That's right. it. I'm like, oh, God damn, Listen, he's out there the, free. Yeah. The he's ability free. to check yeah. out. Yeah. We can, I mean, where we are, it is narrow valley, public land everywhere. As soon as you get off the valley floor, you're on public land. And like we talked about, I can hike, I can hike to the freaking Yukon, man. Yeah, that's and, crazy. And you can be disconnected, as yeah. disconnected as you want to be. And, man, there is no price tag on that. That is no the price most tag. invaluable yeah. thing. Yeah. And I need it. Well, that's the constant yeah. dilemma amongst a lot of hunters, especially the really hardcore guys. A lot of the podcasts that I listen to, like, uh, there's a bunch of them. But uh, the, the big dilemma is how much time does your family allow you to get out? How much, how much time can you spend? Can you do one of those 30-day trips? You know, like, there's a lot of guys that do, like, a 30-day trip. That's pretty heavy. That's heavy as fuck. But yeah. there's some street cred to that, or should I say trail cred. Right. <laughs> right? You might have coined a new term. She's like, you know what fucking Ranella said to me once? It was really funny, man. We were laughing. We were talking about Grizzly Man. We were talking about the Werner Herzog documentary, and uh, Ranella was laughing. He goes, I'll tell you what, though. He goes, that guy did some fucking hard camping. He goes, I got to respect that guy. That guy was a hard camper. He and that's coming from a dude out there who does likes things the hard way. way. He oh, does. Yeah. Oh, he loves, he it. loves no, it. No one loves it toil. the hard way more than Ranella. He loves, loves it. Toil. Yeah. He does. Yeah. Man. But there's something to be said for it. Because yes. I think, just like we were talking about, you know, things get more PC or whatever, it's you start patting yourself. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you don't know what rough is. Safe spaces. Yeah. Nerf the hard edges of the world. <laughs> it's super important that we be totally inclusive. This, yeah. Competition is not a bad thing, and there's no more primal competition than you trying to go out and get your own food that's running around trying to stay alive. Yes. And what do yeah. you have? You got a pointy stick you're trying to shoot through. Yep. Another Good misconception, every time a hunter goes into the woods, something dies. That's what I, that's what I hear yeah. all the time. It's like, well, I saw five people go into the woods behind my house on a public easement. I was at a, a, a city council meeting listening to this gal talk. Somebody public easement so people can access public land only way their housing development got built was so that because they allowed a easement so people could get to the public land she's saying that five people went past her house and five elk died it's like not the case yeah. i'll tell you right now it's never happened i don't punch my tag until the absolute last day because as soon as i clip it I got to be back into work with that guy. You know? like, <laughs> I yeah. mean, yeah, I mean, I've had conversations with people that don't understand. They're like, you know, you go out there and you shoot these animals. I go, no, you go out there and you try to get an animal. She's like, well, how often are you successful? I said, well, I went on five hunts last year. And I'm super dedicated. I practice constantly. I'm absorbed in it. Five hunts, three of them were unsuccessful. So that's, and that's a good average. That's a good average. average. Yeah, yeah. A yeah. good average. So you're spending 15, you know, like each each hunt, at least five days out in the woods and yeah. just nothing. 
sorry, come back home, nothing struck yeah. out. Yeah. You know? And you go, oh, that was an absolute failure. My kids look at me like such a loser. Yeah. Like, nothing? <laughs> like nothing. Struck out. Like you didn't, nothing? Uh, nothing. Nothing, you little fucks. Yeah. You can't figure that out? Exactly. It's hard. Come, you can come with me one day. Right now, you're too little to hike. You're uh, lucky. What are the ages? Six and eight. Oh, get uh, close. Yeah. They love, they eat everything though, man. They've eaten bear, elk. They eat elk all the time. Nice. They've, eat, they've been eating wild game since they were little. They, you know, they don't know the difference. It's, they like it. They are love they both elk. Skiing? Yeah, both skiing. Yeah. They've been skiing since they were two. Nice. Nice. Yeah. I took them when they were just so little that they just pizza down the, like when they had the little <laughs> connector to, with the two skis and they just slide. Right. My Race daughter Rosie, I don't even think she was two. No. You have a Rosie? Yeah. No way. Oh, no way. Oh, no way. Oh, because Steve's daughter, right? Yeah. 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 yeah kids are, you know, it's an, an amazing thing to have a little person that you're raising and you get to see them learning things for the first time, which will never happen again. You know, everything they learned for the first time, like every the first time they went skiing, I remember they're like this look on their face, like they got the mittens on. They're like, this yeah. is crazy. I got a helmet on. Whoa. <laughs> they're so happy and excited. Like there's never going to be a first like that again. And the more firsts you can have in this life, I think the better and more rich your life will be. The more first experiences, the more times you can learn things. And people get locked into these patterns in their life. And I don't know why it happens and I don't know what causes it, but... We get a job and we get a career and we get a path in a neighborhood and that's boom. And then the first stop. There's no more firsts. And then it becomes the same shit over and over again. And life becomes mundane and life becomes tired. It's and how you grow old, right? In a lot of ways, other than aging. But the other thing that happens is you realize that this is what's going on and then you seek novelty. You seek new experiences and hopefully... That's what happens to more people more when they listen to podcasts like this and they, they, they hear you guys talk about your experiences and they, they say, God damn it, I need some of that in my life. You know, I need, I need to just go fucking camp. I need to just go out there. I, I need to wake up and hear bulls bugling. And I need to like wake up and hear birds that I don't recognize chirping and squawking and look over the ridge and see a bear. I'm like, whoa. The fuck is it? That's a wild bear. It's just hanging out, chilling, being doing bear stuff. Like all that stuff is like having new experiences like that. It's just giant for your life. And again, if you're not into hunting, you don't even want to go. Just try archery. Just try that. Just try that. Just a new experience. Go somewhere. Find a place that gives lessons. Oh, just go. Yeah, drive out to the national park. Drive out to yeah. You know, Bears Ear National Monument. Go yeah. check some things. Oh yeah, road trip, right? And yeah. you will, car camping is fantastic. It's hard yeah. to get people out of their comfort zone. Yeah, it's hard. But it is, God but damn baby it. steps, man. Go do it. Go do it. First get out hunts. There. One yeah. of the most fulfilling things I do. I try to do take somebody out on their first hunt every year, and it is one of the most fulfilling things I do every year. I'm sure it's just the best. It, well, it always blows somebody's mind. I mean, all you have to do is hear a bugle, and people are just like, whoa. whoa. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't sound like a real animal. No. Jamie, cue up some elk bugle, because for people who never heard it before, they don't know what the fuck we're talking about. You live in a city somewhere, you poor bastard. It sounds like an animal from the Lord of the Rings. It doesn't sound like a real thing. Yes. It sounds like some crazy, exotic beast. Is it a good one? Heard a little bit of it. Did you just pick the first one you found? There it goes. Now, that's not even like a crazy one. That's like That sounds like a little bitch bull. But this is a 1,000 pound forest horse. It's making... It. 
That's a real bull right there, baby. Oh my god. That that guy's like, I get all the pussy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the other one's saying, I'm no I do. Look at him screaming. And then they they throw their head back and just launch that in the air. So these guys are going back and forth in this video. What a crazy animal. It is not something you get sick of hearing. Ever. Never. Man, yeah. every time I've been elk hunting, and I've been elk hunting a few times now, you see one and you hear it and just your whole body like tingles. It's like, whoa, what a magical experience to just to be around these things. To feel that to feel that noise in your chest. Jesus, like, look at the size of that fucker. Yeah. God. I mean, the things that are keeping those things alive are the money that comes from hunting. That's super important for people to recognize. There was a time in this country where those things were almost extinct. In the early 1900s, there was very few. There's very few deer. There's very few anything. And now there's more deer in this country than there were when Columbus didn't really discover this place. And that's why people are so passionate about this, yeah. man. Look at the history. Like, we landed. We said, hey, this place is going to be different than where we came from. The land or the... Animals belong to the people. We fucked that up real quick with market hunting. Yeah, mm. market hunting is an interesting Killed thing. Tell people about that. Most people don't, they don't even know that that was a real thing. They know that we killed off all the buffalo, but they don't really understand that back in the day before refrigerators, you, know, you got to get meat like pretty much then. Yes. Uh, Matt, read uh, Michener's uh, Chesapeake. That There's a great description on market hunting in the Chesapeake Bay. Guys going out with... Um, low-profile boats with cannons on them, stuffing oh, them full God. of shards of nails and stuff, and they'd go up to these big rafts. They'd call it, when uh, ducks and geese um, sleep in the middle of the night on big bodies of water, they all get huddled up together. In the, on on uh, This is in the Chesapeake Bay, but it happened in the Great Lakes also. Big rafts of birds. And uh, you would, you know, push off in the middle of the night, sneak up really slowly on these big rafts of sleeping birds and touch this cannon off, shoot this cannon. And then, and that's how the Chesapeake uh, Bay Retriever was uh, basically bred into existence was they needed a big hardy dog that could withstand cold water. This dog would spend hours never getting back in the boat, but just constantly retrieving for hours because they'd shoot, you know, and probably a mouthful of nails, too, right? Yeah, hundreds yeah, of birds, right? Yeah. Hundreds of birds. Yeah. And then that dog had to then sit on the pile of birds and defend it the oh, next day Jesus. from everybody else, right? Because those birds are worth money. So they were taking them across to... Uh, so they had to be guide dogs, or guard dogs, rather, and they also had to be retrievers. Yes. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. And yeah. then they would bring those to market. By the barrel full. And that's and they were only good for a couple of days. Yep. Yeah. And people would, you know, they would try to keep them cool, and then people would try to buy them as quick as they could before they spoiled, and then they'd have to go right back out and do it again. And that process resulted in just a devastation on the wildlife in this country where... Yes. And the you, same thing was happening with, uh, you know, white-tailed deer, mm -hmm. elk, black bears... Everything. Bison, obviously. Yeah, yeah, obviously, yeah. That's the one that everybody harps on, but they don't realize that it was pretty much everything that we could eat, they shot. And we that's could what... A, we could put a price tag on yeah. it, right? And that's one of the major issues that, you know, we're seeing in Idaho is they want to, and with some of this auction tag stuff, is we're starting to put a dollar amount 
on our game again. What do you mean by auction tags? Where um, we're pulling tags out of the general pool. So, like, right now, um, let's say in the state of Idaho, um, uh, we could all put in, you know, a thousand people put in for uh, four elk tags in a prime unit, the unit that grows the biggest bulls. Well, in order to raise more funds, they've started to remove one of those tags and auction them off. So that's putting a, a, you know, whatever we could all put in for $30 for the remaining three elk. But if we choose to, we could all try to bid on each other for that fourth tag. So if there's a limited amount of tags, people have to realize that your chances of drawing that tag are probably pretty slim unless you build up points. Every year you build up a certain amount of points, and that makes it more likely that you're going to draw a tag. So people that don't understand the process, so one person, they'll take one tag and they'll put it off and they'll allow it to be auctioned off. And sometimes they'll go for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yes. Right? Like crazy rich dudes. So. There's two schools of thought. One school of thought is, look how much money is going to conservation because this one rich asshole that wants to spend $400,000 to kill a bighorn sheep. Yes. And I think, you know, saying it like you do, the rich asshole thing, that's how everybody says it. Right. And of course, I get really frustrated with that because I'm like, well, aren't we as the remaining sportsmen in this pool supporting the rich asshole by giving him the ability? Why don't the thousand people in the pool just agree to spend a couple extra bucks on the tag. Well, that might help, but is it really going to get you the hundreds of thousands of dollars for that one tag? I mean, it seems like without burdening the regular sportsman who doesn't want to spend, like, didn't Montana, like, significantly raise their tags, the the price of their tags recently? There was a lot of complaints. Yeah, they're, uh, but they put a lot of the burden on the out-of-state hunter, not the mm-hmm. in-state hunter. Right, right? yeah. The um, resident hunter gets a break, right? They right. Get... Our in-state... Um, you know, I, I'm, I support a, a tag fee increase for resident hunters because we haven't had one in a lot of years. So what's uh, a tag, like an over-the-counter tag for elk right now in Montana? Or excuse me, in Idaho? I, I want to like say... 40 bucks, 35 bucks. That's whatever. amazing. Yeah, and I want to say Montana's 17 as a resident. Do you know how amazing that is? That for 17 bucks, you can get 500 pounds of meat. Yeah. And for most hey, obviously hunters, your effort, too. Most hunters, I mean, speaking for the guys that I hang around with and nobody else, we like to drink our beer. What? Yes. What? And spending $17 on a case of beer that has gone in, I'll generously say, a couple of weeks. (laughs) Right? I love, I love to hunt elk and deer. Absolutely love it. It is, I mean, it's just something that I look forward to the year long. Right. I, I can very more than willing to spend more than 17 bucks on on yeah. the potential the thrill of the excuse to go hunt for, for a month. sure yeah i think yeah. that's reasonable and that pretty much within anybody's budget i mean just raise it to 20 bucks and then all that money is going to go back to the state and it's going to help and it's still very 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 reasonable yeah and I mean, collectively I was yeah, going to say, sorry. I mean, the reason we don't know the exact price generally is because you can buy a sportsman's package. So I think it's for a hundred and I don't know five dollars. You can hunt and fish like basically anything that's not a draw. Everything over the counter, as long as you don't go over the limit of what you could get. Pretty much, I mean, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, and Idaho's a true lottery, right? So no there are points. no points. 
Oh, it's one of those states. That's yes. interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I truly like it because it, yeah. it spreads out the pressure. Mm-hmm. So our draw odds are fantastic. So now where, where someone wants to auction those things off, like what is a like one of those crazy elk tag? Because I know that wild sheep is the big one, right? Like bighorn sheep are the ones that the people Montana spend. Montana went for 305 Is that what it was? $305,000? Yeah. And yeah. so the same. For an the, elk tag? Uh, sheep. The oh, wow, for breaks area that um, that we hunted, mm-hmm. that I think last year went for over half a million. Whoa! But you got to keep in mind, sheep <laughs> sheep are the 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 rarest thing that we have. Like right. they're doing really well in the areas that that they're doing well in. But in the breaks, we saw a ton of them. Yes. It's crazy. They yes. were everywhere. But disease, you know, they're super right. susceptible to disease. Domestic sheep disease, yes. correct? Right? Because yes. yeah. there was a Sitka video uh, um, that they did. They did, did this short film about the, uh, yeah, the tendroy. Yeah. Tendroy herd. T- is, how, how do you say it? T-N-D-R-O-Y. Yeah, tendroy. Yeah. yeah. And these uh, sheep are suffering from diseases that are coming from domestic sheep. So they're trying to figure out a way to breed a domestic sheep that doesn't catch this disease so that they can reintroduce healthy sheep into these areas and not have them be infected by these different diseases that they yes. get from it's really fascinating stuff do you remember uh kit fisher was on that hunt with us um in the breaks he was rowing one of the boats um he works for national wildlife federation and that's what mm-hmm. he does is he does conflict uh mitigation basically uh, okay. so he identifies those uh grazing allotments um and most of them are on public land um and he identifies the conflict of grazing allotments um mostly for bighorn sheep that could put domestic sheep that could potentially be carrying diseases in contact with these wild sheep herds. So he's looking to, you know, typically pay the rancher that has that grazing allotment, fair market value for that grazing allotment, and he just turns it back over to uh, the U.S. Uh, forest service and that's a real issue with buffalo right with wild bison because there's two schools of thought and there's one school it's about brucellosis and that brucellosis will somehow or another be transmitted from the bison to cattle um but apparently a lot of people say that that's kind of a bullshit argument because it's really about the bison eating up all the grazing land and forcing out the domestic cattle so they're using the brucellosis as an excuse to say that this is the reason why we need to kill off the bison and get them out of the way. I think there's some legitimate... Get a little bit on both sides? Yeah, and, and the difference between the sheep and the bison is sheep don't carry a disease. Bison definitely do carry uh, the brucellosis. But domestic sheep do carry some diseases, Domestic right? sheep do. But the wild ones don't. The wild, wild ones don't. But they can catch domestic sheep diseases. Yes, and they have no... They can't fight No immune systems, all. right? Yeah, they just so, die off. Uh, but yeah, the bison one is, you know, I, I got a big eastern Montana family. It takes a lot of ground to grow beef out there. And if that's your livelihood, absolutely. You know, putting more animals on the countryside. Yeah, some fucking Hulk bison thing that's yeah. way bigger than a cow. Yeah, it's a scary yeah. thing, man. It's going to directly impact your livelihood. But I think just as we were talking about earlier, man, there's some there's some happy medium there. Yeah, And if, especially if we're looking at, you know, um, some of this oil and gas stuff that's getting scary right now, like, especially with, like, all of a sudden we're saying that you don't have to clean up after yourself after you, you know, start a big mine somewhere. Right. Like, I would much rather have bison out there than 
like let's raise funds through sportsmen or recreationists than digging a big pit in a beautiful spot. So yeah, I don't know if that's going to cover it though. I mean, it's the, not. Like, the, like, the Dakota pipeline, like what they're talking about there, is just like I mean, the amount of money that's going to come from that is just staggering. And so the amount of pressure that's involved in making something like that go through is also pretty staggering. It is. You know? But it's dangerous. You know, and what the disaster that could take place is you can't put a price on it. Because what, what, what could be done if they ruin a river system, if somehow or another this gas line breaks and you have oil flooding a river system the same way they had that BP oil rig disaster out in the Gulf. God, could you imagine? That's They're still dealing thing, with man. it, right? Yeah, fuck yeah. yeah. Fuck it's... yeah. And how about the people that had to deal with it that were living near there, that were sick? You know, there's all sorts of diseases and there's all sorts of lawsuits going on and all the cleanup crews. I mean, they had, they made prisoners clean up the fucking, the BP mess and there's a lot of weird shit involved in that. Right. It, uh, I, I'm truly not educated on the economics of it. And my, you know, my brain says that, no, there's, you know, we couldn't, there's no warm, fuzzy eco, you know, lodge that we could set up that would match the funds from, you know, oil and gas. But yeah. Man, yeah, I'm just trying to think long term, and ew, boy, they'd, they'd, it just wrecked that landscape, and yeah. the landscape is what I've, you know, been in love with since a little kid, so. Yeah, you know, and nobody wants to be able to light your toilet water on fire either. <laughs> you know, you ever see this fucking <laughs> yep. Gasland documentary where it's coming right out of the tap, and the guy sticks a lighter to it, and uh, his fucking water's on fire, and people are like, well, they've always been able to do that. That's always been the case. Not with these fucking people. <laughs> with these fucking people, it's directly related to fracking. Like, there's mm. all these apologists for that stuff. It's like, how many fucking earthquakes do you need to have in Oklahoma before you go, hey, um, is this okay? Like, yeah. what do we... You guys have a thousand earthquakes a year now. Is that cool? Like, yeah, as long as it's under a thousand, we're looking at, you know, we, we, as long as we only like pollute like three or four wells a year, it's like we're oh, survivors. It's yeah. fine. Yeah, yeah we you know, we got plenty of bottled water. But <laughs> man, I mean, there's just it, it's constantly evolving thing. You know, technology all across the board is getting way, way, way better. We know way more about these migration routes than we used to. We know way, you know, intact migration routes are what we need for healthy mule deer, healthy elk. Um, yeah, that's like a recent thing. They realized how far mule deer travel, right? It kind of blew these biologists away. Mind-blowing, yeah. Hundreds of miles. Mm -hmm. We have deer in our unit that migrate 170 miles. Mm -hmm. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. They have to. I mean, like years like this, we've got, you know, right now we've got, I don't know, six, seven, eight feet of snow on the ground, right? If they don't travel, it's they're curtains. Yeah. But when you come here and you see no snow, but so many people... What's better? Regarding, I don't... What's better? No snow and a massive swarm of humans or eight feet of snow, not that many humans? What do you I guys prefer? I think as long as you guys stay where you're at and I stay where I'm at. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that works yeah. just Is this fine. like a trick question? No, it's not a trick question. Cause <laughs> I, I always want to talk to people that come from a place like Ketchum and come to Los Angeles and yeah. see the fucking swarm, the hive, the... Get yeah. on that 405 and go, what in the fuck is this thing? Dude, I, I'm not going to... When we hopped on the bus, just go get a rental car last night, I was gripped. Yeah. Was <laughs> I heavy. was gripped. I felt like I was in a NASCAR race. They With a, on a bus. <laughs> on yeah. a junior's car. Oh, yeah. They're aggressive. They're oh, aggressive. super aggressive. Yeah, you have to be. Yeah. Do you know, they did a study that showed there's a direct correlation between the amount of footsteps people take per minute 
and the population that they're in. And also, the faster they talk, they, if the, the population is higher, they, they will say their syllables faster. They will say words faster. They'll say more words in a minute. Well, I can, There's a direct correlation. People from New York definitely talk faster. Oh, yeah. Agreed. Oh, for sure. Yeah. But it's fascinating. They walk faster, too. Like there's there's a Here it goes. Senator, what is this? Amy clears way for finishing Army. Dakota. Oh, Army. <laughs> Amy. <laughs> finishing Amy. Dakota Access Oil Pipeline by granting easement opponents likely to this appeal. This just happened. This just oh, up. just now, huh? Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Uh, but, yeah, you know, where where you guys live, it's just a completely different kind of place. Look at that. Oh, come on. Look at the first quote. Go back to that. Go back to that. You should mention that Obama approved this project in the first place so the libtards can't blame Trump. Oh, All right, fuckface. Libtards. Oh. That is one of the best words that's come out of this whole fucking right versus left. Oh, man. I mean, like I said, I'm just speaking off the cuff there. Like, you know, I love... I'm an outside guy. I, right. I don't want that stuff to ever change. But... I realize there's got to be something for everybody, too. Yeah. I mean, we're a big country. It's more than just me and, like oh, you yeah. said, super out-of-the-way place in Look, Idaho. So. I don't ever want to live in New York City, but I know a lot of people fucking love it. And good. Go have it. Yeah. Good luck with it. But it's interesting when I see guys like you that come from Idaho and then come down here to Los Angeles, and I see the look in your face, and you're like, fuck this place. You're like, you can't wait to get out of here. I live here. I'm raising a family here. This is where I do my work. You guys are like, fuck this place, right? Uh, I, it's just interesting. It's like the driving. I don't know. Cal, I, I like ran a stoplight already. I'm like, I don't know. You know, it's you the know, hive. Like, it gets to you. Two the layers. Road, too much right? going on. It's crazy. You feel it. You feel the pressure oh, of the hive. Oh, man. <laughs> Putting your blinker on means like, to the next guy, it's like when you put your blinker on to change lens, that means here. It means like close that space, you know. Speed up. Yeah. Don't let that fucker in. Exactly. He's going to slow me down by one-tenth of a second. Hand it all adds up. combat. It is. Yeah. It is. It all adds up. Yeah. It's very intense. It's yeah. very intense. Oh, well, all right, gentlemen, this has been a fun conversation. And, well, uh, thanks. I hope we illuminated a lot of these issues with people. And uh, fuck HR 622. Yes, and, sir. And uh, any bills like it. And we need to do the same thing we did to 621. We need to do that to 622 and contact that guy and start the whole campaign all over again because you, you just can't remove the resources that are going to protect those those lands. They're going to keep coming. It's very important. Yep. So thank you guys for what you do. And your website is firstlight.com, L-I-T-E. Correct. First, is it with firstlighthunting.com or nope. firstlight? Firstlight. Firstlight.com. Firstlight.com, one word. And uh, anything else? Thank you, buddy. That's good. Thank Thanks, you. Joe. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Bye, everybody. See ya.